How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jay. And you're listening to the Cinema Sasha Podcast, episode 239. Oh, that's a lot of episodes. Though. That is a lot of episodes. Maybe yeah, I feel should... like we bring that up every week. Boy, how many episodes? We're just have we so got? self-congratulatory. Yeah, yeah that's, that's why. It. That's it. We and we've attracted another guest we have. to the to the moth light that is our show. Oh, I like that. Yeah, I don't. I know it's gonna. <laughs> perhaps that moth light will start buzzing. Yeah, as part of the serenity. Absolutely. Of the room. Who who's who's joining us, Zeke? Who's this man? It's Andy. It's Andy. And one. Hi, it's me, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> it's Mr. Andy Newcomb. How are you today? Not bad. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. That's good. Yeah. That's a closed mm. question, Jake. Is it? it, is it cl- no, yeah, it, I feel only has a one track response. That's no. okay. Well, it's it's good because we we just talked film and television for like an hour before. We're like we should probably hit record on this thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's like it's a lot of a uh, inside movie talk, right? Like it's not as That's inclusive true. to the audience. I know we don't want people who actually work in film and television to listen to the show and hear us badmouth them. <laughs> so we're like, we'll do it all before the show, and then we'll we'll pretend to be so positive. Absolutely. Once the uh, mics are rolling, I'm joking. No, course, we're an but... inclusive show, much like the film of the week that includes mm. people of all classes. It did. Jake, do you have any it fun does. trivia from the film of the week? I do, but I actually want to hear the fun trivia from Andy first, a guest of the show who actually selected the film for this week, The Castle. I did. Okay, I've got two points of fun trivia. Oh, two. Okay, like first one is a little bit meta in a way because it's not actually about the film itself. Mm-hmm. But in 2017, The Castle came up for sale, as in the house. Yes. And it <laughs> sold for $40,000. Which I think for a house is not that bad, pretty cheap, um, and you could move it too. So it wasn't you could you weren't buying the land, you were just buying the house, and then the idea was you had to truck it somewhere and move it, and it sold at auction, and I have no idea where it ended up. Yeah, it's but, funny because this was part of my fun trivia fact. So thanks for that. But yeah. I, it is a rabbit hole, and to answer your question, I don't know exactly where it is yeah. to this point. The most recent development I could find was in 2019. Um, the the plan was to renovate the house and include it as part of the the Beechworth Mayday Hills Caravan Park. So I guess it's like something people could go and visit, which I think is kind of a nifty idea. But uh, I but, don't know what. But is it like a museum or as like? Well, I think you it's like stay an out- in the castle. When they were well, advertising think- it, because mm-hmm. I remember when the ad was actually listed on like realestate.com or whatever. Did you go for it? We thought about it. Um, <laughs> decided to buy an actual house to live in instead. Oh, fair but, enough. Um, it's like the Simpsons house in the 90s they <laughs> <it> sold. <laughs> um, but they were advertising it as a possible Airbnb location. So, like, you could put it on your own farm mm, or whatever. That's clever. And then rent it out and people could come stay in the castle. Um, but I get your point, though, that, like, eventually, if you just give it to, like, randoms, it'll just get it'll, trashed or destroyed. and then it'll a just... trashy caravan home house. Yeah, like. which is... <laughs> Not the point of the film. It's a man's castle. I mean, come on. I just, for me, I, I wouldn't understand why, like, you know, the, um, what's the body in Melbourne that do the Australian, uh, what's Screen it? Victoria? No, I was thinking Australian Museum. Oh, the movie archival. Amy. Uh, was it Amy? Like A-M-M. No, I went there. You're the one that visited it. I went to it. Same. I've been there um, before too. Nice. Um, I wonder why they wouldn't you know, like get buy involved. It right. And then place it somewhere that it would be a part of like an exhibit. I think there was like, like the council were fighting against it being like up at all. I think it was like a, a heritage bid and it got rejected. 
And yeah, I think you're right. That was around 2016, yeah, I, 2017. I, just a piece of film memorabilia, you know, like in such a, especially, you know, and we're going to talk about it. Is it the epitome? Is it mm. the, the top shelf for Australian film? I mean, that's that's the argument for it. So to see it just end up in some random caravan park will be, a, I, hope it, I hope it's been looked after. Yeah, well, if I think it was that's... in my caravan park, I'd be like putting plaques, <laughs> protecting I'd be, it. I'd be like, this is the this is the Kerrigan's pool table. Yeah, I was about like... to say like a red rope, so you can't go into the pool room. You can only you can only look, not touch. Look, yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. So for forty grand, right, you charge five bucks a head. You'd be okay, making here we that go. money Business back. It would, on. it would not take long. It would not, nah, <laughs> especially if you put back. it somewhere, like you said. Like I think it's Acme. Yeah. In, um, oh, in ACMI in Melbourne. Yeah. Um, if you whacked it there, which is like Federation Square, I think, or yeah. it's like right there in the middle. I mean, you'd get so many people going through. It's small enough that you could probably put it in the building because that's a huge. Well, building. that's it, and it's a yeah. small house, um, and you can, and then you have the speakers with the overhead planes going. That's how you do it. Yeah, yeah. that'd be cool. Sounds of, sounds from the film. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the dogs barking in the backyard. Or that's something. it. That's it. Yeah. Just him talking about lead paint. And... <laughs> yeah. But the, I mean, it goes back to what you were saying, Andy. The fact that that's the journey the real life house has been on, considering the content. Yeah, of the it, film is wild. The fact that we don't know where it ends up is is a bit sad. I know. Nice I found to... I found one article in 2020 that seemed kind of up to date, and I had to pay to read it. And I was like, I love this podcast, guys, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't love it that much. I'm not going to no. pay to. Let's hope it's been. Well, if it's at a caravan park, we should um, just call them. I'll put them That's on speaker. <laughs> yeah, right well, now. We... <laughs> <laughs> what we should do? Yeah, we just we shoot another film in it. That's it. We just do your down south trip in the castle. <laughs> well, it's funny because like. I am, we'll get into it later, but I am so baffled that this was never a, a television series or like the, bring the cast back and do a whole thing. Like it there was, was no follow up to well, it? Well, yeah. Like, yeah. Why, why wasn't it like, you know, like a 90s sitcom? Mm. I feel like it would have well, dominated. Fair, um, Michael Caton was on The Sullivans, which was like a f- Australian family. Okay, it was very similar. Drum. Yeah, it's in the same vein, I think, as The okay. Castle. That same sort of tone. I think that's where the casting of him as Daryl Kerrigan has right, right. kind of come from. But um, and of course, then he goes on. Pack to the Rafters comes out what mm. ten years after this, and yeah. that definitely has the same tonality. That first episode of Pack to the Rafters is like emotional whiplash. There are like oh, okay. three siblings. Their, their nan dies. One of them's on meth. Like it's a <laughs> most <laughs> pa- when you talk about packed pilots, boy, it is intense. Jake, what's your fun trivia fact that wasn't stolen by Andy? Yeah, um, well, I guess another one. I didn't want to say this because it felt a little... I'm going to end it off with a somewhat self-indulgent comment, but I'm going to anyway. So, I know the shooting schedule for the film was cut down from 20 to 11 days because of simply the filmmakers just couldn't afford to feed their cast and crew. They shot the whole thing in 11 days. 11 days. Wow. How insane is that? That is a good fact. That was, but that that's not even my fact. My fact oh. is if you divide that, um, or you divide the number that Michael Caton earned, I think he earned about three thousand dollars for the film, which is what like two seventy per day if you break that apart. Mm-hmm. Which, granted, not adjusted for inflation, mm-hmm. but is less money that I paid my actors earlier this year <laughs> for my short film. But uh, adjusted for inflation, it's certainly more than they yeah. got paid, but. Probably Nevertheless, not as much more as you think, though. No, and but that's because the... it's ninety-seven, right? Yeah, I think... so. They might have shot it in ninety-six, potentially. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I, I maybe it was about double. Adjusted for inflation, it's close to like six grand. 
I would say he got paid. Still. Not so a lot. It's wild. Like five like fifty the a lead, day. The lead, the lead in arguably the biggest film. Australian film of all time. I yeah. would say, yeah, it's definitely there's an argument there. I mean, it's that is truly remarkable. We'll talk about why it's so remarkable in the sure. second half of the show. But um, well, I mean, on the money train between the mm. price of the house to the the yeah. cost of labor, I guess <laughs> um, this film obviously costs seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars to make. So, mm. not a excessively high budget, even for the time. Um, and then grossed over $10 million, which, you know, we're talking about the Dry's Ooh. sequel coming out in a couple of weeks, which also recently oh, grossed... about $10 million as well, yeah. $10 million in a, in a COVID era, but um, I think it's kind of crazy. And then, obviously played at 99 Sundance and sold to the US for another $6 million. The rights yeah, were Yeah, Miramax got a hold of it. Which leads me to my second fun fact. Oh, that is, circled what a, it around. What a step up that was. Um, <laughs> so... I didn't realise this, but I went to put it on last night, mm, and yes. I got the Blu-ray of it, right? Me too. And it goes, what would you like to watch? The one with the Australian soundtrack, mm. or the one with the orchestral soundtrack? Yes. And I said, I was watching it with my wife, and I was like, what are they talking about? I never knew that there was two soundtracks for the castle. And we watched it with the original Australian soundtrack. And so I started obviously doing some research because I was like, mm. why is there a second one? Yeah. When Miramax bought it, they thought that it needed a more traditional score for like American audiences, I guess. And so they um, hired a composer to come on and write an orchestral score for parts of the film. Um, and I'm yet to actually have watched the orchestral version. Man, I need but, to watch that. So yeah. I watched both versions within 24 hours because I'd never seen this film before. Okay. And I was like, first off, w- without spoiling things, I, I want to keep things vague for Andy later when he's talking about maybe career updates he has, but like, that is an incredible coincidence considering what you're studying specifically. <laughs> exactly what we thought. I turned <laughs> that to this Dan- is the film we ended up watching. For I that turned reason. to Danny and I was like, this is so weird. Um, <laughs> and it may feature more heavily in my research than what well, I thought. Well, there you go. Is I'm it, glad. Is it the best... <laughs> Uh, guest selection by sheer benefit. Potentially, of- <laughs> yeah, in terms of exactly like how oh, it might yeah. benefit your career in the future. <laughs> That's well, brilliant. But yeah, no, I did watch both versions and uh, I have some thoughts between the two versions. But well, we can get into that later. Andy, you can kick us off. Normally we start off with what we've caught in the last week. Have you caught anything else in the last week that's worth noting? Or if with Ooh. you, anything recently? It doesn't have to be the last week. So I was... Uh, what have I watched recently? Mm. Hold on. Um, I just watched Banshees of Inner Sharon. Yeah. For the first time. Um, I really enjoyed it. Mm. I thought it was really good. I think the whole concept of like a platonic male relationship mm. being the center story is really interesting because you don't see that very often. Mm. Um, it's usually a romantic relationship or, mm. um, Something like something within a normal family dynamic, even if it's not re- like romantic, I guess. So it could be like an uncle or a dad or whatever. So sure. it was like, yeah, it was really interesting to see like just friends. Um, yeah, that was interesting, and I was sort of surprised by the whole finger subplot. But um, <laughs> I wasn't. The, I wasn't ex- McDonough extremism. Yeah, yeah, I wasn't yeah. expecting that um, as much. But I'm. You've seen um, In Bruges before. I was about to say I'm a big fan of In Bruges, though. Mm. So. Um, and, um, oh, what's the other one that he did? Three Billboards. Three Billboards, That's my yeah. favourite of his. Which I thought was great as well. 
So um, doesn't agree with that. Not a fan <laughs> of three no. It's the only I'm I like in Bruges, <laughs> and I do really like Banshees. It's the one that I have a contentious opinion on. Um, but three billboards will get its time on this show. I'm yeah. sure it will. It is the most different from those two because you, you obviously got the connection of like um, Brendan Gleeson, Colin Colin Farrell, and there's that connection as well. But it's just it's it's a darker comedy than the his other two films, yeah. which are also dark comedies but in their own to way. To echo what you're saying, Andy, I, I think you're 100 percent right. You know, off the top of my head, it is mostly we explore the the same sex platonic relationship, and then if we're exploring like a platonic relationship between two men falling apart. It's normally through a, a teenage or a juvenile lens. You know, it's the, right. oh, we're going through high school and we're growing apart from each other because we're developing... Die with a wimpy kid. Super bad. <laughs> yeah. Super bad. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, yeah. it's normally through that, that, that juvenile lens, whereas you've got these two fully grown men mm. who... And it's funny because it's something that we actually all in our life have a moment with someone where we're like, I just don't really want to be friends with this person anymore because I've outgrown them, but I'm a fully grown man. And it, it does feel quite te Like it feels quite juvenile when mm. it's, and it definitely McDonough's playing to that when, you know, he's getting, you know, Colin Farrell's sisters coming in and being like, you're, you're just being juvenile. Like, why are yeah. you not wanting to be friends with him? And it's funny. Cause there's no social norm for how to break up with someone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That's not a romantic relationship. Like, there's yep. a whole way to do it if you're romantic, but if it's platonic, there's no way of really having that set up. You just kind of have to slowly stop hanging out with them and phase mm. them out, I guess. But yeah. it always leads to a confrontation. Uh, most of the time, yeah, it will. Especially on the um, the situation they put them in by putting them on an island where there's a small group of people. Well, that, that's what I was Which is really say. interesting, because if they were in New York... Mm. eventually you could just slowly stop seeing them and mm. you wouldn't run into them every five minutes. But by putting them on that little island, it's like exactly. it really pushes up the conflict, I guess, because they have to see them at the pub yeah. or And it takes place in 1901 as well. So it's like even just taking it back where there, there's no got phones and social media. And, and, and yeah, this idea, because that's one of the big things about the film is having time to do something that's maybe like more artistically... Uh, satisfying mm-hmm. and and you know what value does that have of a friendship and so I I agree Andy in terms of the the when and the where of the story I think is so important to to telling mm. a much more broad story about friends you know falling yep. apart so yeah it's a fantastic film yeah I love it what about you Jake <laughs> you got anything in the last um, week I caught a few things so I went to I I mentioned it last week the last voyage of the Demeter mm-hmm. I think I think I called it Dementor last week I think I mispronounced it. <laughs> It's a Harry Potter yeah, spin-off. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. Oh, might as well Probably be. Wand. <laughs> it's basically just a retelling of Titanic in a lot of ways. Yeah. Like, it starts in media res. Oh, my God. The ship. What's happened? And then it cuts to the docks, and you got the Leonardo DiCaprio character, or Clemens, in this situation, who's not meant to be on the boat, but sort of wiggles his way onto the boat. And then, oh, no, Dracula's eating everyone. Oh, oh gosh. Was it fun? It was a yeah. I think I didn't. I certainly didn't dislike it. It was fine. It was very long. I think it's. It felt like over two hours. I don't think it was, but um, I kind of approached it from two angles. It's like, okay, well, what's the story? Because anyone familiar with the original Dracula novel knows. Okay, well, no one's going to survive this. I guess it's like a thing esque sort of storyline where people are going to get picked off one by one. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if you're not familiar with the story, the film opens with this giant text thing that explains the story. So. No one escapes from the context that everyone dies at the end of this film. Yeah. Or so we think, I should say that. But 
so in that case, what's the story? Like, why am I watching this? And I think the thing I could glean from it was this this idea of knowledge and this idea that the main character, Clements, is a doctor and, and when he's asked, like, what are you going to do with your loot at the end of this job? And he's not really interested in that. It's more about, like, knowledge and, and knowing the world is, is what he says. And then they, they find someone, uh, this woman named Anna, in one of the crates that clearly Dracula has mm. been sort of feeding on in the first leg of the journey and by saving her and resurrecting her that she's able to give them info about who this Dracula creature is and, and the fact that the whole film is structured around them reading the, the captain's log. So I guess like all of those elements combined, it sort of felt like this is their way of, of collecting information and dispersing it so that future generations could figure out how to kill this beast. That's kind of the story I could take from it. But other than that, it's like the kills were... If you're going to watch it from that standpoint of, like, fun, gory horror, mm. I wasn't really that satisfied with the kills, or even Dracula. He's very demonic and kind of mindless in this film. I kind of wish there was more character to him. He's just kind of a generic mm. beast. It's a different type of yeah. film if you start adding in that intellectual um, aspect. I yeah. Because that's really the rest of the story. To, you know, something a little bit more... Um, cerebral if you you give them that sort of motive and intellect i mean it's not even the first dracula film that came out this year yeah yeah um you you had nick cage being dracula what at the start of the year renfield is renfield Renfield, yeah yeah. um and i think it's from watching the trailer it very much was like okay this is just like 17th century alien isn't it lord like you said alien's probably a better comparison than um Um, than what i said the titanic (laughs) <laughs> but there are That's other it. there are other dimensions to Alien, which which is why it's such a good film. Is the fact that there are like people on the crew, basically helping Alien. You know, obviously with Ash's character on that, and right, and the fact that it's it is that scientific exploration that motivates it, which is a good mm. dimension there, willing to put that risk there. But it, like you said, if the motive, there should be that motivation that yeah, if they're not going to survive, they've got to find ways to help future people yeah that that was it wasn't overt that that was just the collection of themes i could gather i guess that's what the story is Mm -hmm. um yeah but i i I don't know if you need to rush out to the cinema to see it it was okay the the production value was good and i sort of said this to my mate colin who i saw this with he was the one that really wanted to Mm. go and see it and he he also thought it was perfectly fine um is that we're so used to terrible cgi in marvel films now that when the cgi just kind of works it's almost impressive again that yeah, like, oh, okay. this doesn't look like it was obviously shot in a green screen. So I guess that means it's great CGI now. I feel like the bar's been really lowered at this point. Yeah. But, uh... Wasn't it nice watching Oppenheimer and Barbie and there's, like... There's either <laughs> laughable, like, deliberately laughable Right, CGI like, tangible or... sets or yeah. real-world, yeah, locations. Because yeah. and... even what they did in Barbie was, like, a lot of practical stuff. Mm. Yeah. With, like, the moving backgrounds and you see the behind the scenes. Yeah, and it's like, yeah those transitional scenes. Yeah, you know, when they're in the car and they're driving to Barbie yeah. Land or whatever and you can actually see the, the backgrounds. But it's still a practical effect. Yeah. Um, which is so much better because you could quite easily have done all of that in front of a green screen and yeah. done it later. Yeah. But this, and made it look, like, photorealistic. Yeah, but, like, they were they actually the driving way. through these locations. But it's so much better given the context of the story yeah. to yeah. do it that way. Because it feels, I think, the big thing that we're always forgetting is that we know 
at that point it's already a fake world what's what's really making photorealistic what's that gonna do really exactly yeah. Yeah. like exactly. it actually feels more like a labor of love when they're doing like the painting the walls like in wizard of oz or like your 50s films when they're doing like, yeah. big sound stages and because it, it feels like there's so many more bodies and and there's so much more of an ensemble effort yeah um it's like i think i think greta Gerwig called it like artificial authenticity or something like that yeah which yeah, is I get kind that. of a clever way to, to phrase it. Her and, Noah, her and Noah just want to, like, coin all of the the phrases, the <laughs> filmic phrases. He's like, oh, they I took over Mumblecore, Mumblecore and now they're, <laughs> yeah, now they're doing this. Mm. Oh, but I loved it. So, but, well, we, we saw Barbie together, Andy, and Oppenheimer. We did. We did do Barbenheimer. You did yeah. the Barbenheimer. Well, yeah, the double feature. Okay, um, very good. Which one did you walk out liking more? Oppenheimer, I think. Okay. Yeah. I, I yeah. got, like... I did enjoy both. Mm. I feel like filmically, though, like as a work of art, I guess Oppenheimer was a little like maybe a tier above Barbie. Yeah, um, I, f- I feel like Andy, what was going through your head before you made that comment was, "Is my wife going to listen to this podcast?" <laughs> well, I, funnily enough, funnily enough, Danny didn't really like Barbie. So. Yeah, really, Lucinda's the oh, same. Wow. Yeah, very strong. Uh, Oppenheimer, pro Oppenheimer. Yeah. Interesting. Danny didn't actually come with us to Oppenheimer. No, and well, neither did Kirsty. She, so, she yeah. wasn't the biggest fan of Barbie. Interesting. Um, but yeah, no, I did prefer Oppenheimer. Although I've heard a few critiques of Oppenheimer. Um, I personally is, was like, wow, the editing. I needed. I really needed time to get used to the the breakneck yeah. pace of the film. It was fast, given the length of it. Yeah. The other thing is a lot of people I've been talking to really critique the third act a bit, and it's mm. like oh, I know necessity, I guess. <laughs> um, mm. Given that, like, it was really built up that, like, the bomb is the point, and we get that sort of uh, almost halfway through or maybe two-thirds of the way through, and then we have this yeah. whole other... So much earlier than, yeah. than, than what you guess. expect. Yeah. But what I kind of think is... My, like, sort of rebuttal to that, I guess, would be if you think of it as a nuclear bomb film, then that may be the wrong spot to put that. But mm. if you think of it as more of a political thriller type of thing yeah. where it's mm. Oppenheimer versus... Is it Strauss or Strauss? Or... I, think, I think it's Straws. Straws? But there's a joke in the movie about them mispronouncing it as yeah. Strauss. Yeah, okay. And Strauss. Then Strauss. Oh, maybe because Strauss sounds more German. Maybe that was I the mean, joke. Uh, maybe. I think you're 100% right there. I think it, it's your mindset on that. But I think at, at its core, what he's trying to get across is the weight of that yep. particular event. And all of the events that lead up to what is left with, what we're left with, what is Robert J. Oppenheimer's perspective on everything that's done, how it folded. And I think that weight and the, obviously the trial and, and that massive sort of monologue from Jason Clark in the room, I, I think mm. that it really was indicating that this is just the legacy of, of his choices in life that we're, we're seeing in that third mm. act. And um, obviously with the ending with him getting the award, I think that, Mm. Um, that's the point of the film is we're watching the legacy of a person person's ultimate decision in life mm-hmm. the, the one thing that they definitively did yeah and literally the the uh, the effect from that well I, I agree with you Andy in the sense that like if that's what the film was if it was specifically about the bomb then sure like let's end with that but I think and I, without spoiling it too much for anyone who hasn't listened to it or seen it yet, although if you're listening to this podcast, you probably have <laughs> seen the latest Christopher Nolan film by now. Yes. <laughs> if I'm you're part of our age demographic. Say, yeah. um, but, like, it's it goes back to the last line of the film, or more specifically the fact that 
the chain reaction they were so worried about was atmospheric mm-hmm. and like world ending when really the chain reaction was more metaphorical or um, political, so to speak. Yeah. So I, I think that's, I, 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 I mean, yeah, in the moment when you're watching the film, you're like, oh my God, this was so much more story left. It's jarring, mm. but I'm so glad it's in there. And I'm so glad all that extra context and that, especially the, the straws reveal as well is really interesting. Yeah. I think it would have been great as well if they maybe spent a little bit more time, maybe I just missed it, but spent a little bit more time developing just exactly what it would do to Oppenheimer's career for him to lose his clearance. Because yeah, it kind of true. seemed like to me, oh, the war, the war's over. If he loses his security clearance, doesn't he just go back to a university somewhere and continue his research that he was doing before the war? That's yeah. a really good point. Yeah. And I, I was thinking, I, but if he loses his clearance, does it undermine everything that he's ever done? Will people think that he's a communist? Like, what does it actually mean for him yeah. as a person and his career? And yeah, they could have maybe been a developed. Yeah, they're like what what it was because we're just watching the trial or not even a trial at the end, mm. and you know it's never really like yeah, the film's fully always established. You're trying to catch up with what's happening. Yeah, it's never fully established yeah. exactly what it will mean to him yeah. to lose his clearance. And then we spend we spend what like forty five minutes or something trying to, or maybe half an hour mm. at the end mm. of him going through this losing his clearance thing. Yeah, um, I think it would have been really good to be like, okay, I know you don't want exposition and Nolan doesn't really do exposition in his films but there could have been a way to like weave it in that like yeah. one of the other scientists does something that he or he can't do something because he hasn't got clearance or a university won't right. allow him because all the good scientists are going into the military now after the war or whatever it might have been I don't know yeah I think that there's there's probably trickles there that can help get those sort of points across like with conversations he has with Benny Safdie's character or even the Ra- Rami Malik testimony at the end there there's probably little bits in there that it's like the whole point is that we we want to have these a scientist representative of the fact that there's got these weapons of mass destruction that have been handed to politicians and, and power yeah. brokers, um, and you probably could pick up little bits from that. And then obviously his interaction with Gary Oldman, where he just basically gives him a tissue. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I agree with you saying it is a little ambiguous and there's a mm. lot to... It's, it yeah. makes you want to go watch a documentary and keep adding in uh, yeah, more factual... Yeah, because I, I think you're right in the sense that for me, what it is is it's like the, the hypocrisy of the government for what they're doing to him. But like you said, that doesn't necessarily explain why Oppenheimer as an individual... Why yeah. it's so, like, yeah, drastic for him. Mm. I get that. But I definitely get your point, though. Like, the film, like, almost encourages rewatches mm. and adding to it through a documentary yeah. or a book or expanding your knowledge of the thing and then you rewatch it again or something. I feel like Nolan does that with his films. Yeah. Um, he... I mean, let's be real. After Interstellar, we all went and were like, oh, what's Neil deGrasse Tyson doing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what's a black hole? <laughs> Cosmos. Yeah. <laughs> it's time to learn. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I saw a few other things, but I can throw it over to you always, Zeke. If you yeah, watched I mean, last week. well... You know, on the the Barbenheimer bandwagon, I, I sort of felt in the need to watch some other clever political satires from yesteryear because okay. I really I think Barbie is the first time I've ever felt like I'm looking at the the general reaction um, yeah. from the population. Obviously, first female director to gross a billion, which is like fantastic. Yeah. I think Solo, we, yeah, because like Captain Solo, Marvel is like yeah, a yeah. technicality um, or something And, like and we sat here and um, was Captain Marvel really a billion dollars? Yeah, it was like 1.15 or something. 
that is disappointing. <laughs> that really is a product of the golden years, isn't it? Like right yeah. there of, of the that's MCU. What, that's what I was about. I was just so about to say the exact same thing. Yeah. If Captain Marvel came out right now. It's not hitting a billion dollars, I don't no, think. I don't think because, it's well, well, 500. Because the MCU is not the powerhouse that it was yeah. when Captain Marvel came out. It re- no. It's 100%. Well, there's right. a new Captain Marvel film coming out later this year. Oh, we'll see it. The Marvels, yeah. And true. it doesn't even have an IMAX release. Because um, Dune's taken all its spots. Yeah, and like, there was a period where every MCU film was a billion dollars. Yeah. I reckon maybe three Black years, Panther, two or three uh, years where... Probably Ant-Man even. Yeah, everything coming out. It, did, it, it could be like a B-grade superhero no one had ever heard of. and <laughs> then it, still, it, it would still push that billion, yeah. that mark. Yeah, yep. 100%. I mean, I say to the, the kids all the time, I'm like, you got to live in one of these like eras like akin to the Spaghetti Western or mm. the, the 50s roadshow pictures, you know. You don't realise, like... You'll look back when you're an adult and you'll be like, we won't get it. Like, whatever's next, we don't know what's next. Yeah. But they only come around every 20, 30 years, that mm. block of yeah. movies, of successful, yeah. you know. And we, we've had countless conversations following the strikes about how what Hollywood was like, the system was like in the 70s and 80s and how we got so much different uh, stuff. There was no definitive silver bullet to making money. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I, I find yeah that is a product of the time. But I thought... The reaction's been so weird. Um, to I Barbenheimer. Think. And I'm talking about... I'm not talking about, like, film lovers like us or people that, like, have actually wanted to study film because we'll sit here and we'll read the film and we'll be like, oh, we, we thought it was quite intellectual. We're, we're not going to be like, oh, we think it's super misogynistic or patriarchs or mm. all those things. But I'm like, what's the general reaction to this? And, of course, there's, like... You know, and I'm I'm going off reels and I'm going off like opinions from the film that I've heard from people and, and yep. most of them are like, Oh, it's either one they go one way with the gender logic or the other way. They go, Oh, it's super misogyny. It's, it's either super, too misogynistic or it's like too, too tame. Yeah. It's just like and I just sitting there like, Did everyone watch the film? Like actually watch the film? Like I there's so many guys there's a lot of singing, people didn't watch it. <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's the it's like the Ken song. Like I feel like people completely misinterpreted what that song was, like, trying to say. Right. I don't... I've never felt like I want to be, like, my opinion's right on this, but it, it's weird, <laughs> isn't it? But it is. <laughs> yeah. I feel it like, definitely I feel is. Like, it's, like, every... Like, there are, like, the like the gym bros who listen to that song and go, yeah, a girl doesn't like me because I, I, I'm a 10 and th- it makes no sense why they don't like me. And you're like, are you listening to the song? <laughs> it's mm. satire. So that led to me being like, oh, I wonder what like great satire movies I like. And I was like, oh, well, anything from Mel Brooks. So I rewatched Blazing Saddles. Great. That is so funny. I watched my first Mel Brooks film earlier this week. What Ooh. was it? It was The Producers, 1967. Oh, it's still on my list to watch. Yeah, and it's funny you mentioned Barbenheimer because like, it's a very similar premise in terms of they're purposely trying to make a bad play as part of an insurance scam because mm. they, they could make potentially millions of dollars by getting all this investment money and then having it close on, on the first night. And they, they do like a pro Hitler musical springtime for Hitler. It is brilliant. It is so good. And it's like, yeah, I mean, I've never seen the producers. I've watched men in tights. I've watched, uh, Mm -hmm. um, blazing saddles. And and you just, you look at that film and it's like, I don't, we were sitting there watching it and I was like, this is just, I forget how brilliant the lines are. It's clever. It's self aware. Yeah. And it's like, 
I couldn't put this on in a cinema right now because people just they just don't get it. It's like you know, and Bar like Barbie's got so much self awareness about it, right? And is able to make the social commentaries, and everyone goes, "Oh, I think the ending it kind of peters out at the end there." But I mean, the point of the film is in that last monologue, like the whole mm. we put all these arbitrary labels and on everything, and our perception is is. Uh, you know, over the top and overwhelming, and so binary in perspective. And, yeah. Um. Yeah. I don't know. It's just I'm getting a bit exhausted why people just shut themselves out now. They're so not open to actually receiving information. They're so like, oh, it's attacking me. They're they're always so defensive well, now. It goes back. It's only kind of does go back to the MCU golden age where most audiences just want that. They want pure satisfaction. And yeah. they, they want their films to play out very predictably and, you know, comic book accurately, if you will. And and with the way the internet is and just, like, culture in general, where everyone's so sensitive and, and um, aggressive and antagonistic, is that a film like Barbie, which is, which is very, very tame. It is very, very tame social commentary. Yeah. And people do lose their minds over it. Well, I, did, I mean, fundamentally, did you feel attacked when you watched that film? <laughs> No. Yes. No. But I, I felt so attacked. Just to go off that, I think one of the um, things that people love about the MCU especially is for most people, like you mentioned before, that don't read into the film, haven't studied film, or don't enjoy anything above entertainment. Yeah. For them, cinema is like escapism. Yes. Yeah. So they want to be able to go in, not think about their life, spend two hours eating popcorn, drinking Coke, yep. and then just being entertained. Mm. And then... The problem with something like Barbie when it comes along is because of all the political connotations, they're constantly reminded about things that are actually existing in their right. real world. And we've it also got to remember, yeah. yeah, we've also got to remember that, you know, we're watching it in Australia mm. and the political context here is so different from the US mm. and how divisive their politics is. Whereas we really aren't like that here. Yeah. Um, you know, you don't really, no one identifies anyone in Australia by whether they vote liberal or demo, um, well, that's very. No, they're, they're, that's very... I was going to go American then. See what Americans I mean? are Australian. Liberal. Yeah, liberal liberal. I bet this yeah. guy wants the orchestral version of the cast. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whereas in America, people are like identified by their politics, which yeah. you yeah, just don't yeah. have, and so they walk in this way with one perceived thing, and they go, "Oh, look what this is doing!" and rah rah rah, and they all rage, and then they all jump on their like yeah. social media, which is so funneled into like their belief system that they only see things that they already think about. Um, and, and, it, so, and it goes back to so much so of the different. like. It's like even if Ben Shapiro did watch Barbie, which he might have not, I don't know, I don't care. But like, it goes back to he's only doing it because he can profit off of it. He has yeah. an audience that will agree with any negative connotation he has towards Barbie. Because it reinforces their so ideology. So he'll, he'll make a 45-minute video and make bank from I, it. It swings both ways. Like It's also, you know, a woman watches that film and goes, oh, that film is just for me. It's just for me. Right. Like, men are the worst. Like, it's it goes, like, both extremes. I'm like, just, like, have awareness of the like the whole point of the last act. Like, it's... It's just a film. It's meant to be entertainment more yeah. than anything else. Look, and... you you definitely want the film to speak to its audience. And like as much as Barbie has sort of played that the marketing game and in terms of the way it was written, it's sort of played the game enough that like a lot of men can go with you know, with their girlfriends and mm. enjoy the film authentically. But at the end of the day it's definitely a film made by women yeah. for women. And specifically younger women, so it's like 
I mean, that's why it's sort of having the big impact it's had, and now it's in the billion dollar um, discussion, is because it really does appeal to its audience. That's as well as the, the rim of that audience. I, I guess you're right. I mean, every film's got a target audience, but it can be accessible to other audiences, I think. Well, exactly, yeah. Like, I mean, I've watched... I, I thought Lady Bird was deeply impactful. That's got two female leads in that, like, yeah. there at the forefront, you know, Little Women. What's also thought yeah. that was, you know... I like both of those films. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. all of them. I get messages that, like, I mean, at the end of the day, shouldn't we always sit back to the notion whether it's a male lead or a female lead, we can all get a universal human experience out of a film? Well, I think that's what all of Greta Gerwig's films do, like, unintentionally highlight, is they're all films for women by women, but because they're universal themes, of course they appeal to plenty of men as well. Yeah. Just because of the universality of those memes. So. Oh, yeah. Memes. Oh, my God. Themes. <laughs> yeah, memes. I, I think Mel Brooks really, like, to bring it back there, and, and you can attest now because you're talking about the producers, I yes. think it, it, he has such a... And, you know, he makes that film 20 years shy of World War Two. That's a bold... 23 yeah. Shy, yeah, years shy of World War Two. That's bold to be tackling those sort of themes. And, of course, then he tackles systemic racism from and puts it in the West framework but the film right. Blazing Saddles finishes in a modern day Hollywood like it has it breaks the fourth wall literally yeah. in it and it and it has such self-awareness to it um, just the casting of Blazing Saddles though yeah. is so like tips the West on its head mm. and it's making commentary just on the fact that it's a um, African American actor comes riding it on a white horse yeah yeah as the lead cowboy, like, um, yeah. and then hilariously walks past an orchestra in the middle of the desert, which is great. Um, but it does, and then it has little th- like, and he's so bold. And in, in the same film, he's playing this cross-eyed white governor, but he's also playing a a, a Comanche Indian. He's doing like, I, I you know, blackface in it, in it, and yeah. he's not afraid to do it because it's like that self, that stupid self-awareness, how inappropriate that is. Mm. And I mean. I don't think a film did it as good until Tropic Thunder came out. What thirty years after it? Yeah, which was just we still we still love Tropic oh Thunder. Oh my god, <laughs> so good. Speaking of um, Oppenheimer, though, mm. I think as far as political satire goes, Doctor Strangelove yeah. is great for yes. that. Fantastic. Um, which is just almost would work as a great double feature, really. <laughs> yeah. Um, because it just like it is so good and so hilariously picks apart the cold war and yeah but it's, it's, it's yeah. but it's so true and it, it's also even in that scene in Oppenheimer when they're sitting in the office and he's like oh we don't want to drop one on Nagasaki I like holidaying there <laughs> like yeah <laughs> you're like he went on his honeymoon or something yeah. he's like we yeah, had a great yeah. time so and it's culturally important you know yeah so, it's, um, it's wild to think about absolutely wild I love how they thought about cultural importance while planning about dropping a bomb on them <laughs> I love it was high on their priority list. It's great. <laughs> yeah, I've got to watch the producers. Yeah, um, I I loved it. It was actually it's from a new list that I asked Kirsty's dad to send me because he had great film recommendations from the sixties and seventies. Was like, send me a list. Mm-hmm. So this is the first one on the list, and like I said, the premise is already hilarious, and and like you said, it is sort of edgy and and um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's contentious. And this is very late in the Hayes Codes as well. I mean, the Hayes Codes sort of ended in 69 and then this is 67 um, or maybe mm. 68. So mm. it's like right on the tail end of like the the appropriateness of Hollywood that we saw originate in Babylon, I yeah. suppose, in the, in the, he just was didn't it the care. 20s or 30s. He just did not care. And the fact that, Matt, you got him and you got your leads 
um, you know, Zero must tell and Gene Wilder, and they all sort of have Jewish backgrounds growing up. So there's that edge to it as well, where it's almost. I mean, you look, you have that reading of Raiders of the Lost Ark, where it's almost like a Jewish revenge story, and in a lot of ways, this kind of feels like one, too. Um, but I just thought the comedy was hilarious. Their performances—they're so loud and flamboyant and wacky, and clearly trying to project to the last row in the mm. theater. And um, but I just, yeah, I and between this and Singing in the Rain, I'm, I need to watch more of these types of films. Was that your this... first time watching Singing in the Rain? No, no, no. I, I saw it years ago, but like it, okay, it yeah. made me think of Singing in the Rain in terms of sure. There's like what a 15 year gap still between those films, mm. but they feel like they come from that same era. The of... better version of Babylon. Yeah. <laughs> there is a there is a, hey, we probably don't disagree that's the yeah. attestment to what barbie does it makes you want to go back and watch stuff that it's homaging and, and mm. has a deep love for and i think that's the real beauty of really good cinema is it makes you want to go oh where did all this come from like where does it travel? yeah exactly to? um instead of always wanting to go forward and wait for the next serotonin boost of a carbon <laughs> copy MCU film so is there anything else you watched Andy or okay so the last one of the things that I recently watched as well mm. is Encino Man oh really <laughs> with uh, okay. Brendan Fraser and Sean Astin <laughs> um, that was interesting so I, I that Academy was, Award winner Brendan Fraser yeah, yeah well yeah. not not in this one <laughs> 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 actually he wasn't too bad um I don't have either of you seen it. No, seen it, man. Okay, no. so the premise is Sean Astin's a high school student. He's a bit of a loser. Yeah, and um, it's a very unique premise. So to make himself more popular, he thinks I'll dig a pool in my backyard, and then I can throw the craziest graduation party, um, or it could have been a prom party, one of the two. But it's a big mm-hmm. party at the end yep. of the year, and he's going to fill up the pool. Anyway, they go to school that day and they start learning about cavemen, and they learn that there was like a big um, like ice age that came through. It was very sudden. Anyway, he then goes back home, continues to dig his pool, hits a block of ice. There's Brendan Fraser, frozen as a caveman. Uh... He whacks him in his garage, puts a whole lot of heaters on, melts him out, and he somehow is still alive from the... Um, yeah, from... It's like Walt Disney ca- getting frozen. Cuz movie. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and so then he... And then he takes him to school because he's like a cool dude or whatever. And he starts teaching him about their culture and life and the time and whatnot. And um, that's the movie, really. Um, so Awesome. Does <laughs> Brendan... Is he... Because he's like a hunk? Is that the whole thing? Like, Brendan Fraser's like... Yeah, he, and he's like really athletic and he... Yeah. Um, yeah, he's super fit. He can like... I don't know. And he's new, so all of the girls are like, who's this new guy that's right. like whatever... Um, and so Sean Aston suddenly, you know, he gets invited to parties. So Sean Aston gets to tag along Mm -hmm. and all this sort of thing. Um, pretty sure Kia Kwan is in the film as well. Cause that was the whole thing. It was. They both won Oscars the same year. And it was. Yeah. both. But he only had like one line of dialogue with Brendan Fraser. Like he's really not in it. Right. Um, fair enough. He's like another high school student. Stereotypically, the leader of Very like the Asian. AV club or okay, something. Yep. Yeah, as like <laughs> the random Asian guy that's in the movie. Um, but speaking of making really poor stereotypes, um, it does do one thing that I think was slightly shocking um, in okay. a way. Okay. Um, and the timing of when I watched it, very similar to watching The Castle, was very odd. So I teach a uni- university... Um, and one of the topics we're talking about recently was um, 
representation mm. and this idea of re-representing by the, the re-representation by the culture themselves rather than how they've been mm. represented by Western media. Right, it's like a crazy um, rich Asians sort of thing. Like, almost, kind of, like yeah, along that line. Or like thing, for yeah. us specifically would be like indigenous cinema in Australia. Sure, sure. Um, or something along those lines. Anyway, so I've just taught that class. We watched a lecture on it. We watched a documentary um, and everything. And it's all what we're th- what I've been what's thinking about. Go home, watch Encino Deep Man. Deep research, yep. And... Um, there's a scene where he starts like he's home alone mm. and um, similar to George of the Jungle, funnily enough, <laughs> okay. and he starts flicking TV channels yeah. and he gets to like a, um, he flicks to a TV channel and it's a music video, but it's an Australian indigenous music video from um, Yothu Yindi, who did okay. um, the song Treaty. Okay. I don't know if any of you know it, but as soon as the thing came on, I was like, I know that song. That's really weird. Anyway... This is Encino Man. This is in Encino Man. The (laughs) music video for Treaty by Yothu Yindi comes on. And um, he then, like, makes a connection. Like, wow, these are my people. This is, like, what it's telling you as, like, a film. And he starts dancing around the living room like one of the traditional dancers that Mm. they're doing for, like, a smoking ceremony or something. Yeah. And that's, like, the connection saying, these are also cave people. Like, that's what it's... Oh, my God. Like, that's what it's... That's the commentary that it's making. And then he's going, wow, we're we're the same. Ironically, the whole point of the song is that it's, like, asking for recognition and a treaty with the Australian government Mm. and wanting to um, have good representation and you know, moving past the horrors of everything that's ever happened yeah. before. And, and then this random used. American movie in the <laughs> early 90s, someone must have just been flicking and found this video of, um, yeah, yeah ab- they, they, you know, they, Aboriginal people dancing. And there's yeah. that thought where it's like, well, it's far enough away that this won't pose to be a problem because they would never use, like, Native Americans or For anything. The, like exactly, right. yep. 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 Um, it, they didn't make that... Yeah, exactly. They never made the comment that it was, um, you know, Native Americans or any other cultural group locals. So they were probably like, oh, this is fine. It's yeah. also pre-internet, really. Yeah. Um, it was... There was no, like, social media, I guess. And so... Yeah. Um, that's Most people crazy. don't even know Australia's a country. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't believe in it. Yeah, everyone thinks we're all actors. Like, yeah, that's um, it. Well, yeah. we should also be on strike in Hollywood if that's the case. Yeah. If we're all just pay, acting. pay me more. I know. Yeah, my yeah. my uh, Truman Show-esque life. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, that was a a weird moment in the film. I'll, t- wow. no, I'll tell you that. But it was... Other than that, I mean, it's okay. It was a bit of a... Yeah. <laughs> I'm probably not in a hurry to watch it again. I'll put it that way. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, That's fair enough. But yeah. I do love Sean Astin, so you know, and can't, Brendan Fraser. Who yeah. doesn't like Sam Wise? Exactly. <laughs> Sam the Wise. Oh, do you have anything else to add, Jake? Yeah. So forward? there's one other film I'll mention before we move on. It's called Marcel the Shell with Shoes On. Oh, you got to watch it. I did. No, it's great. So it's on Netflix now. It's very easy to find, and um, oh, it's great. It's a great little film. So it mixes. There's so many great things about it because it mixes stop motion animation with like the constraints of real world lighting and photography, and the whole thing is this big like character portrait mockumentary about this tiny little shell that's just extremely cute and has a very uh, sort of childlike understanding of the world around them. 
uh, and the whole it's very meta because the director Dean Fleischer Camp who has actually made a bunch of these little three minute shorts on YouTube over the years so this is like the big feature that A24 helped get them off the ground and he's a character in the he's the filmmaker roommate so he has like a bit of a meta arc where he doesn't want to be involved like kind of um, getting in the way of his subject but then obviously their relationship develops and he becomes a bit more um, understanding and open to Marcel the shell with shoes on um, but what I really loved about it again like I was saying just the, the blend of animation and there's this one shot that really blew my mind where it's uh, there's all these GoPros in the car so it feels very like chronicle found footage-esque yeah. um, like low grade the way the scene's being shot and the camera's on the dashboard and little Marcel is also on the dashboard and I was just like how did they do that because you've got the real world in real time driving by and all the lighting is like being shunned into the dashboard and like realistically mm. going over Marcel as he's been frame by frame animated. I'm like, I know there must be some sort of CG plating or some, I'm sure there's a lot of trickery that goes into a scene like that, but I was just like kind of blown away by all those little nuances in the animation. Um, but yeah, no, I just, it was very cutesy and, and very sweet Little Marcel's trying to find his family, find a community. Yeah, I saw the preview and was like, that looks really cute. I might cry in that. Yeah, it's definitely a you will cry type of trailer. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, and I, I loved it. And I want to give a shout out as well to Jenny Slate because when I was hearing the voice, I was like, oh, this is like the early Pixar days where like they would have real children voice uh, children in like A Bug's mm. Life or something. And then it turns out Jenny Slate's like in her early 40s. I was like, oh, okay, never mind. <laughs> Pro. Uh, but I recommend it. It's a great little film from A24. Yeah. So, We're moving into yeah. that part where we have career updates. Yes, we but, are. Uh, the best part is we've got a guest to carry the load for it. I know. We, we <laughs> don't need to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Andy, tell us a bit about, I guess, career-wise. So, you mentioned you, you teach in a local yeah, university. Yeah, so uh, I'm teaching at Murdoch University. Mm-hmm. Um, as I am heading towards completing my PhD... Mm. In film sound is what I'm studying. Um, so Doctor Newcomb. At Newcomb. some point, That's that is the that is the <laughs> goal. The goal. <laughs> it's the primary reason that I'm doing it to get those two letters. <laughs> Just so all my mail can come to Doctor. That'll be nice. How um, um how much how costly is that venture <laughs> to become letters. a doctor? Not well. So here's a fun fact for you. Mm. PhDs are free. Um, oh, really? Yeah, but. Um, well, they, you, they fund you, don't they, to an extent, to do it? So, I managed to get on a scholarship where I got paid a fortnightly stipend and the PhD is free. Wow. And the reason they do it is it's a federal government funding. They, like, certainly every university gets it. Yeah. Um, and it's because um, universities have to have a certain amount of research output mm. and PhDs are a really good way of doing that. And so they'll, you know, to keep the university status, I guess. Yeah. And so they pump that. And then the government, I think it's got to do with, like, as a country, I guess, you want to have a certain level of research and Mm. development and things going on just on, I guess, on a world stage and whatnot. So I genuinely didn't know that. Yeah. So Mm. um, to get a scholarship, though, um, it's a, like, so I did my undergrad and then I did a year of honours and then you really need to get a first class honours, which is above 80% yeah. for like once they average out the whole year worth. 
um, to be eligible for the scholarship. I think you can get around it depending if no one else is applying, I guess, but um, really that, yeah, that's the way to get into the scholarship part. But I'm almost 100% sure that even if you don't get the scholarship, you still don't pay for the degree. The only problem right. is is it's a whole lot of work. So it's really hard to... Work alongside. Yeah, yeah. so and everything, that's yeah. why. So like if you're not getting paid, it's it's hard to do. Yeah. Um, given the amount of content, I guess, that you need to produce um, at the end of it. Oh, um, wild. Yeah. <laughs> the big thing is, what is your PhD on? Okay, so I'm looking into film music specifically. So I went, in my honours, I went film sound and I was looking at the full soundtrack from um, music, effects and dialogue, which are the three elements that make up a soundtrack. Yeah. And now I've focused that down to just film music. My overarching question is, um, how do audiences make meaning from film music? How are they able to, what I would argue is like read the film, yeah. which is not a, a great term, I guess, because you're watching and listening to a film. Um but I guess that's like the academical version of it is, is reading a film. Yeah, is it like the cognitive aspect? So is it the the fact that when we hear a certain score without even comprehending the visuals, we're able to almost comprehend the visuals? To an extent, yeah. So it's, it's sort of like how does the music affect the way that audiences understand narrative and story and character mm. and plot? Um, and does changing the music affect the way that's understood? And then the real... I'm narrowing it right down to what is the difference between using um, original music, which I would define as the audience has never heard before watching the film. Yeah. So think Oppenheimer in that case, or using existing music, which is something the audience may be familiar with before watching the film. So like you think Barbie. like Barbie, Tarantino, <laughs> Scorsese, yeah. any of those sort of guys. Yeah. Um, that would be sort of like, how do you do that? differently and how does that affect the way you do it and one of the sort of i guess practical outcomes of that is if we think of going back to mcu is it worth using iron man in um sorry is it worth using acdc in iron man right or could they have paid a local man five grand to record some rock songs that are acdc-esque but uh, otherwise original. but are otherwise original and the audience yeah. doesn't know like is it worth paying half a million dollars. I think they paid about $500,000 or something along wow. those lines for ACDC for yeah. Iron Man or something. Yeah. And you go, well, is that that worth that? Or like, what is the audience actually getting out of that? Is it really adding a huge amount of meaning to the film? Yeah. Um, it's, it's a really interesting question too. And then, I mean, it has so many sprawling branches such as like the difference, yeah, between like having a score that's diegetic or non-diegetic too yep. and having that aspect and... Um, what effect that might have on a viewer. I mean, I think, you know, it's like Carney writes, you know, Jim Carney for all three mm. of those films, um, you know, wrote a whole soundtrack and uh, uh, diegetically for all three of those films, there's no like pre-made music ahead of time. And yeah. I think that ha changes the effect. And the, on the other side, the most recent example I could think of uh, for a film is when I watched uh, it's Nimona. Yeah. Nimona, which is the Netflix animated film. And the fact that they play the song Banana Splits during uh, one of the action scenes. And, of course, the, the character in that scene is played by Chloe, Chloe Grace Moretz. So you think, of, oh, it's the Hit Girl song. And that's Hit Girl. Ha. Mm. So it's almost mm. like that weird takes you out of the movie sort of meta yep. joke that's going on there. And whether that's additive or or takes away from the experience. Or even, I would say, Guardians is... Like oh, the Guardians yeah. films are obviously... Their soundtrack is like 
one of the main foundations and pillars to those films successful effectiveness really i mean mm. that's the the big marketing point all three of the films have put that at the forefront it's not about orchid like there is a score no one talks about the score <laughs> it sits between all of those those pop songs really mm-hmm. um it's so inter- it's such an interesting i love sound I, i've always mm. said i even say it to the kids now when i'm teaching them like we we start teaching them soundscapes in year sevens and i like you know i get them to close their eyes and and listen to like a score to completely right. sensory cut out that sense and have them react to that. Um, and they don't really get it until they close their eyes and actually commit to the exercise. Mm-hmm. How sure. effective just sound mm-hmm. by itself, you know, the fact that when you say, Oh, what do we see? Like, what do we see? When I say the word film, what do you think? And everyone always thinks of the visual. They always say sure. visual stuff. Um, they never say, the audio stuff. Yeah, fifty percent um, sound. That's, that's always it. my argument. <laughs> I, I actually reckon it's the more f- important fifty percent. That's my. It's pers- always been my wow. opinion. Because um, I was lucky. I mean, I did screen and sound at Murdoch, and I think I remember doing. I recently did communications and media in that first semester. Oh, okay. Switched to sound production. I was like, oh, I don't know. There's a lot of music in this, like music making. And then you get to those like second and third units where they start going, oh, film sound. And I was like, oh my God, this, that, I enjoyed those units more than I enjoyed the filmmaking units. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, what well, was that? Is I was going to ask Andy, is that part of your research? Say, for example, Guardians of the Galaxy, where obviously the music is for music people are very, very familiar with, but they also find a way to sort of tie it into the story where it's motivated by you know peter quill that's the uh, the tape that i think his mum left him and yep. so it's like it makes sense in terms of the period the music comes from but also in terms of the character's relation to that music mm-hmm. is that a big part of your research as well is that kind of stuff yeah it would i wouldn't say it's a big part but it's sure. definitely um like an element of the whole concept of the audience making meaning from mm-hmm. that is like the age of the audience for guardians for instance right ironically the age they're their target demographic is not people that were um, alive in the 70s when that mm. most of those songs were popular. But it still gives the vibe and the feeling, not to get into the castle too much yet, but it's the, <laughs> the vibe, vibe of the, the, the whole thing. Yeah. You know, it's... Absolutely. It, it's Marbo, it's the vibe. And so it's just... Um, <laughs> so, you know, you want to... Um, you, you think about it. The one who does that really well, actually, is yeah. Scorsese, who uses music... Mm to um, tell you what time period it is, which he does a lot mm. in um, Goodfellas, for instance, as we go yeah. across, like, he'll walk into the club and a certain song will be playing, and then later, when we're a few years later, and or when he's an old guy at the end, different music's playing and so on as we move through the decades. Yeah. Um, some of the really interesting things that I'm looking into is... Um, well, I find them really interesting, anyway. Yeah, um, <laughs> is this concept of original music becoming existing. This is when we start to get a little bit more complicated. So if yep. you think of the James Bond theme song, for instance, it is an original song for James Bond, but no one who watches a new John- James Bond film is not familiar with that song to mm. some level. Right. So even though it was originally original score for the music, it now functions as existing music because audiences are familiar yeah, with it enough. very true. It's the thing of Star Wars, Indiana Jones, any of these Jurassic Park, any of these like franchises where they yeah. keep using the themes. Um, 
that is right sort of when you start nostalgia. to blend those ideas. Mm. Well, even like um, I, I think of the Bond example because like, I've sat, not to this day watched any of the Bond films, but I know so much. I am of, very disappointed. I know, I know, and I've even got a few there on the on the old bookshelf. But I so many of the tracks that were made for each of those films, especially like the Billie Eilish one that came out what two years before the actual movie itself came oh, the out. Introduction songs. Yeah, well, exactly, yeah. and it's like those are mm. that's music written for that film. But just because of its release schedule, it's become almost existing music long before it had a chance to be associated with the film directly. Yeah, I mean, think of um, how big like Skyfall by Adele was. Yeah, oh, it was huge. a huge, huge song. Huge. I huge mean, it's song. a career-defining song. Yeah, her. I mean, she did have other songs, but that most people put that in her like top three, top four. But yeah. for her particular discography, but oh, that's such an interesting. Thing, you don't think about that like we did Indiana Jones only a couple of weeks ago and it's like yeah that that I mean he made that joke didn't he when Harrison Ford walked on the stage and he's like that music follows me everywhere it's, like, <laughs> it's so true it, these these original scores then take on that popular um, and then especially when they get parodied in other other products too it's full it's, circle yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and it's such an interesting thing to think about Um I mean, it we, sounds we, we talk, specific, but it is such a well that you can dive into, I guess, when you choose to study it. It's on scores that, it's like, we're saying all these big franchises, but it's like one of my favourite um, cinema soundtracks, The Sting, with the Scott Joplin mm. piano. And that's still one of the funniest things, because I'll play that, and people will know it, but not know it's from The Sting. Well, like when that, I first saw feeling. The Sting, I was like, oh, it's this music, and I was like, oh, they took it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it shows um, how, how catchy it, yeah. something is that so can surpass the film itself and just become yeah. ingrained. And then you you make your own meaning out of it too. Like if you learn a soundtrack before you watch the film, then that soundtrack could have a whole different other feeling to it. Yeah. Big one for me, um, Hamilton. Of yeah. like hearing a lot of Hamilton songs and then actually watching you know, when Disney did their recording of the stage play. I'm like, ah, this is what it actually mm-hmm. <laughs> derives from. Yeah. And it's... um. I guess one of the overarching, like, theories, I guess, that I'm sort of putting... Uh, that I'm supporting, I because well, it's not my theory, but, but I'm kind of supporting, <laughs> is that it's the audience that makes the meaning. And so the right. author can... And this term, the auteur or the author or the filmmaker or however you want to argue who makes the meaning of the film, um, they can put forward something, but the audience then reads that and then they create their own meaning. Mm. I don't know if anyone remembers sitting in, like, an English class in high school... And they'll be like, oh, the... Um, Basic communication model. Yeah, the, um, <laughs> the you know, the author has made these curtains blue because... There's too many teachers in this room. <laughs> they're, um, they're, yeah, the author has made these curtains blue because the character's supposed to be sad and blue is, like, yeah. depressed or yeah. whatever. That's why um, this room is super blue. Well, yeah. In massive um, depressed status. Um, but a lot of people come through, like, um, uh, what's his name? Um, the name's Authors? just escaping me, but he um wrote an essay called "The Death of the Author." Um, okay. And this this idea of that you no longer no longer is the power with the author that the audience is the one actually making the meaning because mm. once the text has been released or the film like we consider a film to be a text, once that's been put out, it now exists as its own entity. Yeah. It now no longer has connection to the author, yeah. and it's now a thing. And then when the audience member or the reader or whoever gets it, they then read that 
and make meaning from it, yeah. depending yeah. on their life situation, their age, their demographic, whatever, will create different meaning out of that text. Yeah, that I mean, that is actually what the basic communication model is. It's, it's your sender or your producer of a text sends it, it gets um, encoded in whatever mm. vessel, so a film, a book, or whatever, yeah, and then like the medium, all the meanings will, yeah. and themes are derived in the message, which is the text itself and the, all of the messages that the author intends, but then that gets decoded by us through whatever medium we watch it in. So yeah. the, we're watching it in a cinema, watching on the TV, watching on a laptop, headphones in, headphones out. Um, and then we instill our personal and cultural values on mm-hmm. that. Um, and then that's in the decoding process where all that noise of decoding mm. is introduced. You know, the fact that I'm sitting here, we're sitting here at the start of this podcast talking about how Barbie is drastically received by and decoded drastically different by depending on your gender or your class or your, some of them are thinking it's hyper, hyper feminist garbage. Some are thinking it's, it's not feminist feminist enough. enough. (laughs) And then you're like, okay, well you're putting all your stuff on it. Well, it's, it's interesting because this, this is something I almost learned writing skin and blister was that there's certain questions you feel like you have to answer because of, if I don't answer this, the audience is going to be confused. And what you realize is that some answers, you're right, they inspire audiences to come up with the, the derive their own meaning and their own answers to those questions. I think at the end of the day, we sit here and the reason, what what would separate us and why, what is a real film lover and like someone who actively wants to get better at understanding how films work is you're actually just trying to mine your way as close to the original intended meaning of mm. your alter as possible. Like you're doing everything in your power to try and really get close to what they wanted their message to be. You're really just decoding yeah. and you're trying to get past all of your own personal perspectives mm-hmm. and be like, what did that author actually want me, mm-hmm. that director actually want me to understand from this text? Making films is hard, man. <laughs> one of the things that it's kind of led me to, this is kind of getting more back to our like political comments that yeah. we are having a bit earlier, is this whole idea of the death of the author and the text existing, like you said, as its own medium of putting forward something um, is one of the reasons why I will never kill off a film or something because someone in it's been cancelled or someone Mm -hmm. in it's been like is no longer socially acceptable or whatever it might be because to me that film now exists as its own thing that is not that's not theirs it now is its own thing Mm -hmm. and um and I'm also of the point of view that there's like 300 other people that worked on whatever yes, it was, whether yeah, it's a director that's, that's or a lead actor well. or yeah. whatever. Yeah. That could be the best film. And most of the time it is usually a good film or they, that actor or director has made good films. And, um, you know, that could be the sound designer's career highlight. And now yeah. suddenly no one ever wants to watch it again. I mean, what, you're um, just never going to watch a film from the Weinstein Company ever again? Like, it's just... Yeah, there's so you know, many. Like, um, okay. Yeah. Yeah, like and despite what you films <laughs> despite what you might think no one has said Kevin Spacey's a bad actor no because everyone thinks he's a good actor I mean and probably I, probably how undis- he did things for so long yeah. if he did or didn't <laughs> it's because yeah. he's a good actor <laughs> and to your point I don't think like I should I if I'm gonna watch Baby Driver it should not negate the role that like Edgar Wright and then all the actors and, and exactly, producers yeah. and sound designers and cinematographers and camera team. Yeah, that's kind of where I stand as well. I was like, well, there's so many other people involved in the process. It's mm. a shame to negate all of their work. For yeah, and Baby Driver one. is now its own thing. It's Baby exactly. Driver. It's not yeah. 
you know, the Kevin Spacey vehicle. Well, yeah. it's like, but it's like it's like or a film like you know you take American Beauty and it's like well, that's Min is that Mindy's Mindy's isn't it? Yeah, Sam Mindy's. Yeah. And that's like arguably his best film. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's like, and, and what, are you going to take that away because of... American Beauty is an interesting one because the topic of the film is... It's very, adult, yeah. Um, yes. It's a little bit on the nose as far yeah. as so I'm not everything gonna, going on with I don't that, blame anyone for feeling uncomfortable, especially for that example, because a, it is close to home. That's but, when it gets hard to separate artists from artists. Yeah, uh, exactly. Artist, you know, because it's... Um, like, but, if something makes you uncomfortable... What was... You know what? And, and I, I say all this and was also like, I don't want to watch The Flash because of Ezra Miller. Like there is there is a thing where it's like that I just generally didn't want to watch it because yeah, that you person didn't makes want to me watch it and that just pushed you over. The well, end. sure, <laughs> but that was I like the thing that's that was a different in a way though. because it, everyone was aware before the film was released, mm. and I think that there was might, an active push to still get it made. You're yeah, right. and I think that might might change it. Whereas if you look at like an like something historically, and then you find out later that. Um, you know, something with one of the people that worked on it was an issue or whatever. Yeah. Um, it might look at it differently than if they continued to bring things out afterwards. Are you, yeah. well, you never going to watch a that's... John Wayne film because of yeah. John Wayne or Charlton Heston or like, yeah. you know, Sean Connery? Who Just yeah. imagine the art going back hundreds of years when you found <laughs> out what the people were like. Yeah. Like, it would be insane. We'd yeah. cancel everything. <laughs> yeah. Which, um, but to get off that topic, it was just an interesting yeah. thing that I thought of with... um. You know the whole text becoming their own thing. Yeah, um, yeah. No, it's it's a it's a good one. Well, I'll ask you in that case before your PhD talk. Does your PhD require you to make a film? It does. So mm. I've made a short film. Um, technically, I've made two short films, but it's only one film visually and two films as far as the musical soundtrack goes. Um. So the um, the um, all the rest of the soundtrack, so the, the the effects and the dialogue is going to stay exactly the same. Yeah. The music has changed. And just to jump on what you mentioned earlier, um, the diegetic and non-diegetic, as in the diegesis being the, the world of the film, yeah. um, has changed in both. So mm. there's two scenes where a guitarist plays a song and sings, mm. and we shot those scenes twice, with one where he plays all original music, that was written for the film, and then the other he plays existing music. Um, Do you remember what time of night that those scenes were shot? Were they late? Do they you? were pretty late. <laughs> <laughs> there's an onset PTSD. I was, oh, I was I'm, to say. I'm kidding. I think to that's be a... fair, it wasn't as late as my film. Was, so yeah, I'm was, sorry to both. I don't think you. I don't think you can talk. Yeah. <laughs> I was about. I was about to say, is that like a dig at the producer there or what? Like, no, yeah. no, I'm kidding. I'm um, kidding. I generally didn't realize we no, shot two was... versions of the same scene, so that's a, that's probably more a compliment. Yeah. So I didn't we, we shot yeah. Two so it was cut together. So the camera setup was exactly the same. The lighting setup was exactly the same. We went through the exact same shot list, but he just played two different songs. Yes. And yeah. so when we've cut it together now, visually, it's it's never going to be identical because the performance sure. will always slightly move or mm-hmm. camera will move a very sl- like slightly different timing or whatever. Yeah. Um, but it's pretty much as close as you're going to get. And then now we're in the process. So the existing music version is complete. Nice. Everything in the... Um, no, sorry. The original music version is complete. Everything in the existing music is done except for the non-diegetic existing music. Mm-hmm. So the cut okay. and the music's been mixed from what we recorded on set. It's been put in the film. That's all been cut. 
We just need to put in the existing mu- the existing music, and then mm. we're good to go. Um, yeah. Which is ironic because I think we're literally both sharing the same uh, post sound guy. We are for our film, so it's. <laughs> I started first. <laughs> Cue by, by like a year and a half. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no, I've used Diego for both of my films. Nice. Um, couldn't use him for my third year shooting film because I was the sound designer, so oh, fair couldn't enough. Couldn't really replace myself. What was your third year? Um, Sandman. No, I wasn't. No part of the Sandman crew I did um, all at once it was a light the one with the lighthouse I don't know if you guys remember I don't think I saw um, that one it played the same year as um, Dollhouse which was Ollie's and Andrew's oh, okay. film um, and another weird one with a party but I can't remember what that was called or who was on it fair enough um, well that would was that 2017 would have been yeah I guess we just didn't go to the showcase that year. No. Because that was me and Zeke's first year at Murdoch. Okay. So I guess I just guess we yeah, didn't go was. to that. Yeah, it was. It was, yeah. That's what I think about. Yeah. Yeah, because we took a gap year. Because we saw Ivory in our second year. Okay. Yes. So that makes That would have been yeah. our first showcase then. That makes sense. Yeah, so... So what's your uh, PhD film called? Chapman Station. Oh. Um, both versions are called Chapman Station. <laughs> um... Yeah, and so what I'll be doing with the films is, and I'm having audience members come and watch the film mm-hmm. in like a one-on-one screening, and then they'll, I'll then speak to them for 30 minutes in an um, unstructured individual interview. That's the methodology that I've gone for, not mm, to get okay. super deep into all that. but um, <laughs> A chat. <laughs> yeah, well, pretty much, yeah, have a conversation about it afterwards. Yeah. Um, they won't be aware of... So no what, one who what worked on the f- being asked about. yeah. So by going through all this, I've just kicked you off the possibility of being part of the That's audit okay. and oh, research. Sorry, so um, right. Jake was already excluded because he worked <laughs> on the film. So no one who worked on the film and no one who knows too much about it is allowed to do it. Which so is anyone really... anyone who just listens to this podcast. <laughs> well, <laughs> yep. And then it really. Um... <laughs> Oh, and I can't have family either because of, like, conflict of interest. So, uh-huh. it really, like, negates a whole lot of people in my life. So, I've had to really hope for randoms to sort of want to come and do it. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, I've put out social media posts. I've put out posters at uni. I've put it up on LMS. I've done all kinds of things to try and get people to come and do it. Um, because, yeah, anyone that I've gone into any sort of depth of conversation about what I'm doing... Obviously, there's going to be a skewness. Yeah. yeah. They start to skew their answers. Because a, a lot of my questions aren't directly related to the soundtrack. So they'll right. be, how did it make you feel in this scene? Yeah. In the first one, where did you react any differently in the second one? Without actually telling them that the music's different? And because I have a feeling some people won't pick it up. Um, um, it's, a, it's baffling how little... Like, all those things, from all of the mistakes that are in my films, and there are a lot of mistakes in my films, people just don't pick them up. Like, no, sure. Like, Home Again, which has, like, lights that are sitting in the background. No one picks up on them. Yeah. Like, we'll sit there and be like, oh, there's, there's, a, there's a light that's, that's jumped into frame. But mm-hmm. I, feel, I feel a part of this, we're so intimate because we're all working on yeah. our own stuff. Yeah. Well, when you're looking for faults, you will find them. That's well, the thing. Exactly, exactly. Um, well, and, I mean, like without transitioning to the castle just yet, but it's like, yeah, if it wasn't for 
the fact that I was very cognizant that I'm watching two different versions of the same film, I probably wouldn't have noticed the subtle mm-hmm. differences either in the score. Because the orchestral, it's a very quiet... Yeah. Okay, it's not trying to dominate mm. at all. It's just like a subtle little reinforcer of how you're meant to feel in that moment. Yeah. I mean, the irony of music is is that it's the silent manipulator mm. of, a, of a person. Mm. Well, the the like the literature says music, film music is best when invisible, which is mm. kind of ironic because it is invisible. Yeah, um, <laughs> but um, the the except in Blazing Saddles, you of, see the orchestra. The <laughs> amount of times that they use visual terminology to describe music and sound is so funny because mm. it just goes to show how integrated the whole concept that films are a visual medium is mm-hmm. because even when they're trying to describe sound they're always using visual terminology which i, I find really interesting um that is interesting. but just going back to how like people i don't i have a feeling people won't notice is yep. we're going to be playing the film um differently so some people will see existing first mm-hmm. and then original and then others will watch original first and then existing because i also have my one of my hypotheses is that people will prefer the first version Regardless because people will have yeah. i have a feeling people will have this idea that that's the real one or that's the proper one or whatever because that's the mm. one that they've seen first i just have a yeah. feeling that people might attach to that and then go oh, well, this is wrong because it's different. Yeah. Well, that, um, that's the same thing with The Castle when I, I sat down to watch the orchestral version because I was like, oh, mum, you would love this. You should come watch it with me. And I was like, oh, but it's the, the Aussie version. You know, yeah. Like, I, even cognizantly trying to do this for research, I was like, it didn't I want to listen to the lock, one. I, I want to listen to the one that I heard first. Yeah, yeah. and you, so yeah, if you're I, showing I you're someone... spot on. Yeah. If you're showing someone new, you go, I exactly. want them to see the real one exactly. or the proper one. Yeah. Um, yeah, which is really interesting. Um, no, that's great. That's Mum great. was like, Jake, I don't care. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds like a spicy PhD will be coming uh, to the... The journal article websites, I assume that's where it ends up, right? Yeah. Do, well, do they physically do it still? Is there like you, a- so you used to automatically get the book, now mm. you have to order one, like and buy it, I think, because yeah. it doesn't automatically. Um, you know, they just don't assume everyone wants a physical copy, mm. but it does go to the. It'll automatically go to the Murdoch Library, so I think it'd be physically available and on the Murdoch Library website. Nice. So that's where it ends up. No one really reads PhDs though. So, as far as your journal article comment goes, what people do afterwards is they might publish six or seven or eight articles out mm. of their total research. Right. So, each chapter, you might be able to pull something out. Um, so, I'm currently working on a, um, a video essay at the moment. So, each of my chapters is going to have a video essay in because nice. it's a lot easier just to play music than mm-hmm. to describe it. Um, and it's one of my <laughs> early... So, it's chapter two. I'm looking at how audiences learn to read films. It's not something that you're just born with. You learn it through exposure to film. Yeah. And I'm looking at that through Disney Disney films. So I'm looking at the Disney Renaissance from 89 to 99. Mm-hmm. And as part of it, so Little Mermaid through to Tarzan and everything in between. Um, well, as everything in between. I mean, they're 10 feature films that right. came out. Yeah. Um, and so as part of that, I've interviewed filmmakers that worked on those films. I was going to ask was, you about that, yeah. Which was, um, like, incredible for me because um, I love the films. And I actually, I just cold-called people, as in, like, emails and Twitter mm. and whatever. I had no connection in. Mm. Um, and I ended up getting some really interesting people to talk with. I talked mm. to um, a guy named Tab Murphy who wrote uh, Hunchback, Tarzan, 
they were the two films in that period. But then he went on yeah. to write Atlantis and Brother Bear. Oh. For <laughs> Atlantis is like one of my favorite films. Yeah, for Disney. And then I spoke to um, Kirk Wise and Gary Truesdale, who were the directors of Beauty and the Beast, Hunchback, and then directed um, Atlantis as well. Yeah, wow. Um, although Atlantis was outside of it, so I got to speak to the directors as well. And were then, these like recorded conversations? Or? Yeah, so I recorded Ooh. them via Zoom. Nice. And so I have that, and then I'll, they'll all be cut together into like one video essay, arguing for what you know my point is, in between like throwing in scenes from the films that we're talking about mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Yeah. And um, you should play the, as a joke. You should play the live action versions of their films that Disney have done. Well, yeah. Just to mess with them. I definitely um, look forward to using those video essays. Oh. <laughs> um, the two though that I was really like super stoked. Well, not that I was in, but stoked about is um, I got a guy called Mark Mangini who is a sound designer and he's a two-time Oscar winner for um. Mad Max Fury Road and oh, wow. um, was it? I think June. He just won for June. Oh, wow. as well. And he did. Um, yeah, so he, he's um, he works with Denis a lot. Yeah. Denis Villeneuve, um, and yeah, did Mad Max as well. And so he was sound designer on a on like a few of them, Lion King and stuff. Yeah. Um, which was pretty hectic. Mm. And the then, 2019 Lion King or the no the oh, the 1994 oh, Lion King because that's in my he might know my time boss period. Then. Um, yeah, and then I also got to speak to Alan Menken, who is the composer that currently I think has equal most Oscars of anyone alive. Oh wow! Um, he composed Little Mermaid, Beauty and the mm. Beast. Um, Hunchback of Notre Dame, Pocahontas, and Hercules, I think, where he's five. So he, out of the ten films that are in that decade, he did five of them. Um, yeah, Dude, that's which, a primary which, which source if I've ever heard one. But it was, <laughs> but it was wild dealing with him too because everyone else was just kind of like, yeah, give me a call, like I'm free at this time, we can organize it or whatever. I got Alan Menken on. Um, Actually, I might not say like how I got in contact with him, just so he doesn't get bombarded sure. if people want to um, have a chat to him, because it's not really kind of how it works. It's a fun um, affair story. Yeah, and um, but <laughs> I but anyway, got in contact with him, but you could tell it was like a tier ab- above as far as how big he was, right. because I very quickly got palmed to his um, like assistant. And they did all of the planning and the booking, put it in his calendar, oh, yeah. had it all set up. And then we were the, doing the communication. And then it just got to the time. And um, and then it was just on and he was just there in his studio in New York. And, like, it was hectic. But it was really cool. Yeah, um, I imagine. I didn't realize yeah. you interviewed that many people. Yeah, I did 11. I did 11 in the end. Wow. Um, writers, directors. a lot of, like, late nights for you too because of the time difference. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of... It was a lot of, like, 11 p.m., 12 p.m. type. Oh, 12 that's a.m. That's... Sorry, 12 a.m. So oh, okay. 11 p.m., 12 a.m. type conversations. It's not um, as bad as I thought it would be. I thought it would be, like, 4 in the morning or something. No, so I gave them availability. Like, it, that would have been... if, oh, it was, okay. if it was one o'clock in the afternoon for them, it might have been, but I was not available at that time. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I gave them windows in the Drew morning. The <laughs> I gave them windows in the morning and windows in the afternoon, but in the middle of the day, it was not happening. Yeah. Yeah. I love um, how you're giving them demands. Yeah, yeah. So when I, I, said, <laughs> I said, I'm available every day of the week. These are the hours I'm available because of the time difference. And everyone was really understanding about oh, it. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it was good. That's awesome. They're though. just um, human beings at the end of the day. That's what really, like sort of drew it in when I started talking to him. I was like, they're just people that have made a film. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the people, other than like 
Alan Menken potentially, and some of the directors, they still yep. do a lot of stuff with it because yep. they're well known. But a lot of the people I spoke to have retired. They're not a f- they're not the actor or they're not the director, so they're not super famous. Mm. Um, I saw, talked to a guy who's in the chorus for nearly every one of the films. Like he's a singer oh, wow. on it, yeah. and um, and so he's still working. Like he still flies into California every now and then. He doesn't live there, but and he does things for Disney and all other sort of films and whatnot mm. but he's never going to be picked up as someone that um variety aren't going to do yeah, a yeah exactly yeah, or he's yeah, never yeah. going to be talked to interview when a film comes out or anything like that but they all had really interesting stories and were really good to talk to and they all had like different takes on the film and um yeah it was really it was really interesting it must be yeah. just you know and just to sort of wrap it all up but it must be such an awesome experience to have that opportunity to sort of sit there and you, you're conducting research and you're searching up all of these, you know, interview subjects. That's such a... Having that journalistic sort of approach to sort of... It must be such a cool experience to do. I mean, we don't really... You don't get that opportunity unless you obviously seek those sort of PhD journey paths. Yeah. But you don't do that in your undergrad and you probably don't, you don't even touch on it. Really. You might touch on it a little bit in your honours, but we're in such a small community film community bubble here that mm. you know to look to get those deeper real deeper understanding yeah you do have to look abroad and and that's cool that it was attainable and accessible i mean obviously a bit of like you still did a bit of footwork but it is really interesting to see that for anyone who wants to research stuff if you do it in the right way you can mm. still achieve that yeah definitely um you know it was great and yeah it's 100% possible and I didn't realise just how possible it was until, <laughs> until I actually did it, it. yeah because yeah. you need it, you almost need that scary push don't you, you I have to get these things because I'm doing a PhD yeah. so I have to go oh and my god I'm contacting these. this person yeah it's like the first time you do a documentary and you're like oh I have to go like talk to people <laughs> like I actually have to go find my talent and, yeah and, and, and one of the things that I did was I just went there's no I don't care if I get rejected. There's no... I'm not going to say they're too big. I contacted everyone. Yeah. So I contacted Hans Zimmer. I contacted Elton John. Yeah. I contacted um, Phil Collins, who did Tarzan. Yeah. Like, these huge stars. And for all those cases, I got an email back from someone who's like one person away. I'm really sorry. That sounds really interesting. I'm really sorry, but they're currently unavailable. Yeah. Which is great. I was one person away from Hans Zimmer, and I was just like, whoa, mind blown. Yeah, but um, still, that's really cool that even you get that response back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll talk no, to you good. off the show. That there's a I could maybe... Are you still after Hans? I mean, it would be great. I yeah, could maybe but, help you out. Maybe. On the, on the edge of the seat there. <laughs> well, I think it is time, Jake. We do move into our film of the week. Yes. So I'm, I'm sorry if you have any uh, updates. No, no, no. This was an Andy episode. Don't there you worry. Go. Was there anything else you wanted to whip out there before we move on from career updates? No, I'm keen to get chatting about the castle. Let's do it. Beautiful. Well, Jake, what are we watching? This week in the show, everyone, we're watching The Castle. The Kerrigans were an ordinary family blessed with extraordinary gifts. Sophisticated palates. What do you call these things again? Resells. Chicken sponge cake. A priceless automobile collection. Could you move the Camera? I need to get the Tirana out so I can get to the Commodore. I'll have to get the keys to Cortina. I'm going to move that Camera. An appreciation of high culture. Dad reckons there's only one show better than Hey Hey, it's Saturday. Mom, what's right, son? 
Tracy, this is it. The luggage in number two. Go! An innate sense of taste and style. This is going straight to the pool room. How do I look, Dad? They had this one channel, kickboxing, 24 hours a day. A love of unspoiled nature. How's the serenity? Not a sound. Finally, the most cherished gift of all, their house. Dad called it his castle. And this is my backyard. Is that the runway there? Well, I reckon we're the luckiest family in the world. Until one ordinary day, a knock on the front door changed everything. Compulsorily acquired. This is a compulsory acquisition. They're going to take our place and we don't get a say in it. But that's why you'll be duly compensated. I don't want to be compensated. You can't buy what I've got. Now the Kerrigans must venture beyond their own backyard to face the biggest fight of their lives. If it's going to be lawyers, I'm going to hit them with the big artillery. I cleared that trade three a Melbourne family is very happy living near the Melbourne airport. However, they are forced to leave their beloved home by the government and airport authorities to make way for more runways. The castle is a story of how they fight to remain in their home. So I hold in my hand, and you mentioned it earlier, Andy, the castle Blu-ray with the both versions. Did you read the back of this by chance? No, I didn't. You, no. Uh, I'm going to give it to you. I want you to read the back. Because I, I think um, it might be one of my favourite blurbs to any DVD of all time. Okay. The the castle, remastered, replastered, and re-stomped for Blu-ray. Looks so good, <laughs> you'll think you're dreaming. Remastering, the technical process explained. The first step in the process was to find the original 16mm Interprose, Interpose, which turned out to be in a safety deposit box in Zurich, along with several dozen production stills and the Marcos Millions. This interpost was then repaired and given an ultrasonic clean, followed by a thorough dosing with spray and wipe, which managed to remove all of the damage and part of the final scene. The film was then scanned to 16.9 HD and colour graded. In addition, a special new soundtrack was created for hearing impaired viewers, although this was subsequently removed after it was found to be audible only to small dogs. Finally, all 127 spelling mistakes in the closing credits were corrected, or at least rendered marginally less offensive. <laughs> it is pretty phenomenal. I, I had that DVD sitting on my desk for two days because it's like we need to read that on the it's, on the show. <laughs> it's so in the theme of the film as it well, is, yeah. which is great. Yeah. yeah, they don't pull any punches. Well, uh, this is the first of three credited feature films for Rob Sitch. Yeah, yeah. Sitch. Which is interesting because I read somewhere that this this film was essentially made just to fund his follow up film. The Dish. The Dish. And then he did, in 2012, Any Questions for Ben, which I think exists. The only one of the three I haven't seen. The Dish is Oh, you've great. seen The Dish. Oh, okay, cool. I have The Dish. I oh. haven't seen The Dish. The okay, Dish but... is fun. It's very similar to this, but it's not as bombastic, I think. Okay. This film's quite uh, aggressively Australian, I think, mm. is probably the... You could do a cinema sideshow road trip to The Dish, because it's up north. Oh, there you mm. go. We'll bring the mics in the car. Or... So the, the dish centres around, not to get already too gentle, but sure. the dish centres around uh, that a dish here in Australia was the one that actually broadcast the moon landing. Oh, that's sick. Picked up the, the final descent to the yeah. moon. So, so it's it, about finding that dish. Yeah, and, and it's about like, it's actually got Sam Neill in it, so it's a very yeah, like, it's okay. definitely that step up in terms of production value, but still carries the same sort of tone. It's kind of like a 
the evolution of Taika Waititi in those those earlier sort of from the Eagle vs right. Shark into Boy, we start to see that there's a bit of a funding elevation, but the tone's still there. I think it's sad that Rob Sitch didn't end up directing Rams because it'd be like he's two leads. Again, to be honest, the Rams face kind of face. fit in the same tone. I think <laughs> you know, I think that would that kind of. But this film really created this whole Australian subgenre. I think. I don't think. Mm. I mean, you could argue it comes from Crocodile Dundee, but I think that this carry this Australiana tone comes originates with this. This film's the cornerstone for that. Well, I'll I'll throw this over to you, Andy, because like we said earlier, you you specifically picked this film. Like, come on the podcast. What film do you want to do? And you picked the castle. Now, I did. I know part of the reason he said this. There's not enough Australian films that we've I covered. did. I did say that for a, an Australian film podcast, <laughs> there was a severe lack of Australian films on the list that I was sent. Um, mm. But one of the reasons I picked it is, I mean, love the film for starters, but it's something I watched, you know, years ago with dad and like yeah. my brother and everything. So we, and we quote the film endlessly. Of course. Um, yeah. It is endlessly quotable though. When I rewatched it, it, um, there are just so many lines that yeah. are great. Um, so that's, yeah, one of the reasons. And also I think it's it's just so iconic and Australian. More mm. so, like to jump on Crocodile Dundee, it's a very Australian story, but it feels quite American. Like it's quite mm. Hollywood, just the actual style of the film. Mm. Whereas the way this is like edited, the dialogue, the film itself, like the budget, the, everything is just so Australian. Yeah. Um, it's more than just the story itself. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's... Well, even, it's like, the, even just the opening... I mean, the whole film's narrated, of course, but even just the opening scenes that sort of introduce us to the family, it feels like a home video more than, like, a big production. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I think that's part of that, that grounded Australian It's style. one of the things that I actually picked up while I was watching it, mm. is I was like, this is... I don't know, not to jump off again onto, like, another tangent, but... Mm. If you've seen the new Mission Impossible, but have, my one yeah. of the, my complaints about it was, it, in my opinion, had really poor exposition. Mm. It's like the start of it. I know they always do the if this mission, if you choose to accept it, thing. Yeah, where it felt like it went for way too long this time, and then in the near the end of the film, there was like a break for like ten minutes before the third act, going, if this happens, this will happen, and if you do that, that will happen, and then this will happen, mm. and they're just explaining all the outcomes, like the possible outcomes. Yeah. Whereas this exposition was like a VO, so there was a narrator. Yeah. And then the thing that was just like, I thought was great, is it set up the sayings like straight to the pool room mm-hmm. by showing the importance of the pool room to the dad. But then it would do it comedically by it was saying, oh, dad was, um, you know, oh, they would have like a comment where the dad would be like, oh, dad always says this. And then the dad will say it. You know there, what I mean? There's or so like, much comedy about the the repetition. Yeah, and so like they're the making dialogue, jokes yeah. about the narration mm. as well as so it doesn't feel like it's just banging you over the head with this sort of exposition. No. It's really yeah. clever. I think having that first shot being Dale's talking straight to the camera. Yeah, and then having it go through it. What it is is it's to build up this this castle straight away. You know, at first it's the it's the irony of oh this this they love this house but it's you know, it's this little crappy kind of granny flat makeshift that's got DIY and stuff. And as he's going through explaining things like the pool room, the pool table's skewed off to the left-hand <laughs> side and it curves into 
the whole but all it is is building up you know <laughs> this the Kerrigans is this strong unified family yeah. um, from the get go and, and how much he looks up to his his dad really and mm. how his dad is this big strong pillar that kind of keeps the family together um, it, despite being yeah like obviously them just getting by and stuff there's this element of, like, the the simplicity of it is so attractive and, like, heartwarming. And I part of it, again, when I said earlier, is I can't believe this was, wasn't, like, a, adapted into a TV series. And part of watching the film, it felt like a TV series, not because it was just the, the fades to black and the cross-dissolves that happen all over it. And I think part of it was the orchestral version of the film that made me think that, because it does hit those, like here's a loving family unit, it hits those notes harder, and it kind of mm. it kind of jolts your brain to think that. Um, but the thing that is so lovable about them is, and and it's kind of like what Sean Baker does in a lot of his films about American subcultures, where it could it could be very easy to make a film about a subculture and looking down on them and like oh look how sad and miserable mm. this life is you know there's you know there's so much out there and and they're blissfully ignorant about all that and what this film does is make it look so enticing and so warm and loving. That I, I wish that all of our lives were as simple <laughs> as yeah. the Carrigans were. And and the fact that I love the line of um obviously Daryl's like, Oh, you know, I, I can't believe we got the house and it was such a great deal as the planes are flying overhead and it's like it, it's almost it's almost worth as much as when we got it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, like property never goes down. Yeah. But he's like yeah. he loves the fact that it's he doesn't care that it's gone down. Yeah. 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 And it, it, I All mean, the food, the simplicity of the food. I think it's such yeah. a great film and it, watching it again, it, I remember watching it for the first time, yeah. year nine English, like my very Australian English teacher, who is my favourite teacher I had the whole through high school, we yeah. played this film. And at first, you know, we're laughing at how silly they sound. Mm. We're like, oh, we don't sound like that. But it, when you look back on it, you're sitting there looking at this time and, and we've got to think, you know, I'm watching this film in, what, 2012, mm. watching this film. We've had that big finance, you know, we've had a GFC, we've had a mining boom. The whole world has kind of changed into this super monetized uh, world where, you know, we all want to own a home, but housing prices have gone through the roof. And, and this is in a time where, yeah, the, the guys who are just a tow truck, they have a tow truck driving business. Yeah. They not only have this house, which they absolutely adore and they love and they've built, you know, they've built onto, but they've got a holiday home in this kind of backwater, yeah, yeah. middle of nowhere sort of country town. Bonnie um, Doon. Bonnie Doon. <laughs> so good. And it's interesting because that's where that concept of the Australian dream, which for us, you know, mm. we're all sitting here and only one of us is a homeowner. Mm. Um, and we've all got insurmountable, well, we're going to have insurmountable mortgages and it's, yeah. it's a different world, you know, we're going to be, but it's still that pride of owning a home hasn't mm. been lost. We don't oh, lose that. Of course that. not, yeah. And um, like, even and even if like, I mean, we have international audiences that watch the film, like, you know, Miramax, By the Rights and Put in America. And like, yeah, I, I feel like there are universal themes in general, like the idea of the family home and the unit. But even without that, the film's opening scenes beautifully just they showcase how the home is intertwined with all the all the fun things about the family unit and it like goes back to the simplicity of the cooking but then 
um, you know, like all the dogs as well in the backyard. It's just, there's all these staples in the family dynamic that don't exist without the home that they will take mm. place in. So even without all the Australiana context, mm. the film still manages to showcase that right at the right at the get-go before the story really begins to play out. They're immediately compelling and lovable too. Mm. Like, with, yeah. I, I don't think there is a film that makes you like a protagonist group or a protagonist like a protagonist more. Yeah. Um, if the Kerrigans is a collective protagonist, they are genuinely likable and endearing from the offset. Mm-hmm. And even the one like the brother in prison. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's never brought up that like, oh, he's a bad guy or anything. It's just. Right. Oh, he made a mistake, fell in with the wrong crowd. Yeah. Dad's still really proud of him, though. Um, and, you know, oh, it's so they're so sad that he can't be there with them, but, you know, we'll sort it out later. Yeah. Um, it's such, like, a nothing yeah, it's roadblock just kind of, oh, in their lives. Yeah. yeah, and then, like, when you meet the lawyer, and he's like, <laughs> he's like, you defended... Is it Wayne, the older brother? I think it's Wayne. Yes, it's or, Wayne, Wayne in prison, and, yeah. And he goes, you defended Wayne. And he goes, yeah, but he got eight years. <laughs> and, and he's like... <laughs> Dennis is one of my favourite new film and television lawyers. Oh, he's great. He's the best. Um, yeah. But yeah, talking about you, just to add on to what you were saying before about when you first watched it and you said, oh, we don't sound like that. One of the things that... um, So I was only three when the film came out, so obviously I didn't see it at that point. Yeah. We but were both it, born um, the year it came out. Well, there you go. So <laughs> it... um, Dad, well, I was talking to Dad about it and he was like, the problem that a lot of people had... And I was talking to someone at Uni today about it and he said the yeah. same thing because I think he was... I think he said it was he, he was in year nine when it came out. Mm. So he used to watch it at a similar age that yeah. you watched it. But he was saying that the problem that they had, and this is what Dad specifically said, was it was too real. And so a mm. lot of people, when they're making jokes about how no one knew anyone that's been overseas or had been on a plane or yeah. that, um, you know, the basic home cooking that you mentioned earlier or yeah. whatever, he said that a lot of people found it too real and they were kind of offended in a way, or they thought that they were being mocked rather than right. actually getting then being to... represented. Yeah. So yeah. he said that a few, quite a few people didn't quite get it. Right. That like it was actually quite wholesome. It wasn't yeah, like a mockery of the it's, and that's interesting, of the thing. The generational fact, but it's also that cultural phenomenon at the time. But even its its legacy is the fact that the vernacular of the film, and this might be the most quotable Australian film of all time, yeah. at least, but the fact it ingrains in your psyche, you know, I don't never not go camping now, and every time I'm camping, I say, how's the serenity? <laughs> yeah, you can't <laughs> not. It's just... <laughs> and things are always going straight to the pool room, and even people yeah. that don't, that's an Australian saying now. It's, yeah. it's oh, gone beyond the castle. Yeah. And things can go straight to the pool room. Yeah. Um, it's... Yeah, and when we, whenever I see something on... Um, like, often, if I see something really weird on Marketplace, I'll send it to um, my dad and brother and go, bet these don't come up often. Yeah. Because, yeah. like... <laughs> tell him he's dreaming. Yeah, tell him he's dreaming. And it doesn't, like... It's not something I'm interested in buying, but if it's something really obscure, I'll yeah. be like, I bet these don't come up often. <laughs> Jousting sticks, how much? Four fifty. Well, you know, that, like... th- those jokes landed so well, especially with me and Mum watching it together, because we were just like, "That's Dad." That's yeah. the, a million percent the relatability, <laughs> yeah. and we were just talking about. I've got this creepy ET doll that I've had for years, oh God, and it only too. it only came up very recently. We were like, I think me and Kirsty were trying to get the battery back because it talks and lights up and everything. And we're like, "How did?" Like, I was so young when I got this. There's no way I like asked like, "How did I get this?" 
Mum's like, oh, it was really cheap, so Dad just bought it. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. what? <laughs> I only learned that like a week ago, but it, yeah. it's so, I mean, just those, like, those little details that, mm. are, that are littered throughout. And like you were saying, it's, I can understand how people could mistake it as a mockery. Yeah. Uh, especially at the time when it's like, I, I feel like every detail in this film is is being portrayed as as like beautiful and warming and loving. I mean, this is one of the strongest family units I think I've ever seen on film yeah, and television. Yeah, if you get through to the end of it, when he starts talking about how you can buy a house, but you can't buy a home. Yes. And it's built out of memories and the people mm. that are there. And then, you know, Wayne says, oh, it doesn't matter about the house. Um, it's, you I know, it's it where the people... Yeah, yeah. yeah, and then he, you know, the dad goes, oh, Wayne's even got a photo of it up in prison, but he doesn't. He has a photo of the family standing in front of the yes, house. Yeah. And the dad thinks he's got a photo of the house, but he's actually got a photo of the family. And so it gets quite like meaningful at the end. But I have a feeling um, maybe people didn't stick around long enough to really get that oh, that's what it is potentially. Yeah. So um, it is interesting when, you know, there aren't many films that really do explore or are bold enough to explore something that seems on the surface so mundane and, and normalized but it's like because it's not a a bombastic culture it's you know you take a film like my big fat greek wedding where you know that is a that's a cultural experience exploring what it's like you know obviously it's got that americanized aspect but it's about them being integrated into a big greek family and yeah. it has the same comedic earnestness there but obviously it's because it's such a bombastic culture whereas yeah. on the surface what is the Australian identity? I mean, for most most of us, it's up till this point when 97 rolls around, it's been, yeah, wrapped up in the Crocodile Dundee layer of, oh, well, they're just these hard-toughened uh, outlaws, basically. Right. And, you know, we haven't had many uh, westernised, like, for, for the rest of the world to see what, what does it mean to be Australian at that point. That's kind of... The biggest exposure there. they've had the crocodile Dundee expect. Mm. I guess you got Peter Weir with with Gallipoli, but that's got a little bit of the Larrikin stuff too. But mm. it's obviously because it's coveted in that war drama aspect. Yeah, it's it lost a little bit in the shuffle. I think it's that visual aesthetic because you think about just a few years before this came out, you had Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, mm-hmm. which should be the complete obliviation of our idea of what like an Australian represents, mm. and yet I think it's the visual. Um, like representation of that film that people don't associate these two together. They see the castle and the immediate thing you think when you see the visuals is, yeah, like it's more a King the Crocodile Dundee yeah, or, or a mockery or a parody of, of something. Yeah. And then you got Muriel's Wedding and that gets mostly like synonymous with its ABBA aspects mm. to it. So it, it gets a lot, you know, and that's a Swedish band. So they, it almost loses a little bit of that Australian identity because it chooses to not sure. play... Yeah. And well, an Australian score apparently, because this film I can't believe it has an Australian and American score. That's yeah, so wild. And I think the yeah. sound, the sound design in it is actually very Australian as well, because mm. even now, like modern Australian films, mm. are usually quite sparse in their sound design. They're yes. not over the top, yeah. like with big holes. And that could have something to do with budget, how much mm. time's given to the sound design. We could get into that rabbit hole at some other mm. day, but um. It's very simple. There were a few musical cues, like there was a few guitars and things. Yeah. Then there was mainly um, like what we'd call existing music, like songs that they've put in. Mm. But most of it was like really quite sparse. There wasn't mm. a huge amount of sound, um, music. 
There was one really good bit of sound design, though, that I, I thought I'd bring up, which is... Is their... the bug zapper? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, great great guess there. But they're sitting on the porch at Bonnie Doon. Yeah. And they're just like, oh, can you feel the serenity? How good is this? <laughs> Not a sound at all. And the whole time, the bug zapper is just going off and it sounds terrible <laughs> and it's so annoying. And then I was like, what is... At first, I was like, yeah, oh. what is with the buzz zapper? And then he makes the joke right at the end where he yeah, says, there's no, you know, there's not a sound at all or anything. And it's just great. It's so good. Well, I think because that, that, you're right. It's a very uncomfortable sound and it's sort of yeah. dirty in the soundtrack. But they establish earlier in the film that it's like they love... It's not that they love the like. Oh, I'm looking up at the power or the 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 light poles because it reminds me of like the Man's, advancement of humanity. Man's ability to yeah, make yeah, which, is, <laughs> which is a brilliant line. But then it's also like it's seeped into their background as well. Like the buzz zapper, that like they're un, they're unironically referring to that as part of the serenity and part of the Australian yeah. soundscape, which I think is is absolutely brilliant and. Yeah, no, it's um, so many great lines. Yeah, like one of my other favorite quotes is it like towards the end where um, they're like, oh yeah, uh, Coco had a son. Um, oh, Dad yeah. names him Son of Coco. <laughs> it's just, it's just so, oh, it's so funny and so classic. Yeah. Um, there's yeah. some really good um from a cinematic point of view. There are some really good, uh, albeit they're they're not subtle like you know, camera codes and conventions being used. There are very... The depiction of the corporate, the the, the oh, low yeah. angles as they move towards the final court hearing mm-hmm. as they're yeah. looking up at the big building and well, stuff. Well, even just, like, them behind, like, their podiums, the judges and that, where it's, like, the, the majority of the frame is the podium and the, their little heads are sticking out at the top <laughs> of the frame. I mean, so it's just scaling them, yeah. He gets a, a, a guardian angel to come and save him yeah. <laughs> from, from a random conversation. Who he automatically nicknames. I don't know if yeah. you noticed yeah, that, which yeah, is so yeah, Australian. I wrote the I wrote Laurie in my name because that was the first time I heard the name. I was like, yeah. oh, he actually does say Lawrence right before that. Yeah, so he introduces himself as Lawrence and he goes, oh, Laurie. And straight away. And the, yeah, uh, Lawrence doesn't bat an eye. He just continues as if that's completely normal. Mm. Which is, like, something that we often don't even pick up. But that's such an Australianism to, it like, is, yeah. instantly nickname someone when you don't even know them. And then um, for them not to care and just kind of go with it as well, which... Actually true. Um, and, 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 like, we call him a guardian angel. But what I love is that the, in this in this moment, the film is rewarding Daryl for, like, his honesty and his, like, proud dad speech. The yeah. fact that... You know, it, it will be easy to laugh at him where it's like, oh, his daughter, the biggest accomplishment any of his kids had is to become a hairdresser. But it's his authentic excitement and joy for that mm-hmm. um, that the film rewards him in this moment by having Lawrence hear it. And it's someone who technically represents the government, side, the, or, the, um, the or, oh God, what am I, the, the authority, the bureaucratic, the establishment, yeah. exactly. Um, and finally gives him a helping hand because up until this point, his blissful ignorance is what, makes him the underdog in the scenario when the when the bureaucratic elements come in to to fraught him and take his house mm. and so I love that he's kind of rewarded for his constant just his personality. But instead of getting a gun we say shove it. That's yeah. how we do it in Australia. You know the, the when he actually gets the when the son actually gets the gun and the yeah. guy goes to the front door. Where'd you get that from? I told oh, yeah. you no more guns in the house. It's like, <laughs> oh, I bought it. Oh, how much? <laughs> like that straight away. One eighty, two fifty. Yeah, it was two fifty. Got it for how much you pay for it? One eighty. And then he goes, and then he's like, get rid of it. And then he goes, 
sell it. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> it's just so good. Can't throw it out. The immediate you, you, ship, yeah, yeah, you might be able to get something for it. And then, you know. <laughs> it's so well, it's funny because, just... like, these are comedic lines and then they're juxtaposed with that great scene um, where his wife is telling the kids, like, well, this is why we're not accepting the money for the house because of his morals. Yeah, his integrity and everything. Yeah, yeah and it's yeah. like that's deeply rooted underneath all the comedic joking about trying to save a buck mm-hmm. and getting good deals on things and all of that. Yeah. There's actually a really, and this kind of ties in with, uh, your comment, Andy, with the Encino Man and that sort of cultural insensitivity from that particular scene. And mm. obviously, there is a, a line that, that Daryl says that he feels like being like one of the Aborigines right now. Yeah. And it's a very ill-equipped sort of analogy that he's using. And it comes back to that, obviously, not being as in- intellectual and in, in that aspect. But it it is still well-meaning. It's never met yep. with that malicious sort of, oh, I, I suffer as much as them. It's, mm. it's that sort of ignorance of, of the political aspects and obviously the deeper truths. And at this time, you know, we're, we're not recognising, mm. you know, when the film's being made, there's no stolen generation sort of acknowledgement. There's no apology at this point. There's, we've, we're a long way off where we are 25 years removed from this film. Um, but it's interesting because that, that scene, because of the tone of the film and how endearing is and how much we've got to know Daryl over that journey when he goes and says that scene we're not going oh well that's a bit far or anything we're kind of getting where he's coming from without it being uh inappropriate or it also quite um like you said well-meaningly like it makes a statement Mm. without being like batting you over the head with it or anything and it like fits within the tone of the film as he goes You know, he says you can't just remove someone from their land. Like, the land means something and it has some sort of connection. I think that was um, it for me was when he says that line. I'm so used to him having these funny one-liners that my immediate reaction was to... I'm programmed to laugh at that line. And then I'm like, wait a second. That's actually, like, strangely... I, uh, deep, I It's guess. strangely yeah. deep, yeah. And yeah. it almost makes you recontextualize all the other lines that he has throughout the film, which is maybe very funny, but maybe also really endearing for his worldview and like you said Zeke this is someone who we see time and time again has a very limited view of the world and then the film is constantly showing how that can be a great thing and quite endearing but I think that makes for a very apt comparison because yeah I think that's what the film ultimately is about is about ripping someone from their home and their land and and I then the well, film does make several references to like to, real Australian well, law cases like Marbo yeah. and the Tasmanian Dam's case and things like that so I, I think it's very much obviously intentional, but I, when I heard that line, I wasn't thrown off at all. I was like, oh, that's actually very apt. And No, it, and, it, yeah. I mean, it, you know, it is Marvel. It's the vibe, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it is, it, and it definitely has that self-awareness there. Obviously, there is that self-awareness and irony in the fact that, yeah, this is a, you know, a Caucasian white man who has come over here and... We don't actually we, we don't actually know the origin of the Kerrigans. Are they ten pound pom family that have sure. just moved over here? And but it, it seems like they've been a generational Australian family. It feels that's like. what they're uh, given. Um, the way the dad is and stuff. I feel like yeah, yeah he would I've, be. It's a very lived in Australian second like, or performance. third, third yeah. or fourth generation type. It definitely feels yeah. like a generational Australian family, not an immigrant family. Um, and I think that that helps because obviously that's when that conversation of... I mean, he definitely loves his home, and his home's mm-hmm. not in this this 
coveted beautiful district or anything like that it, that's the, the whole point of it's it it's unique to like their family it's yeah. he appreciates being near the airport and it's so funny it is so funny it's so funny <laughs> especially because where our airport is is not a great place no. to have a house <laughs> being right next to it uh, there, there is one line that maybe cannot be recontextualized as very sincere, and that might be a plane fly overhead, and drop bomb. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I prefer these planes in, in Beirut. <laughs> plane fly overhead, drop bomb. <laughs> Does put it it's in a, a bit, you know. You, a fair suddenly point. you start thinking, oh, maybe the noise isn't so bad. Yeah, yeah. Um, That's yeah, great. yeah. I love it when he also goes, I tell, I tell him I have friend come to his house, put bomb under bed. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Blow, blow him to the sky and then he goes I do not have this friend <laughs> like, he's like, he's like, but he thinks I do and then it's like another commentary on like the, assu- the, the, the assumption the, the, that exactly, like because yeah. this person you know is from Beirut that they're gonna have these sort of like connections yeah. and the assumptions that they're making and people at the time and everything yeah um, but that's another that's like even in that little small um, community with obviously him and and Jack the old the elderly man that lives um, yeah. next door who can't afford to go anywhere else too so it there's a lot of stakes in it but it's that that's another aspect of the Australian dream that maybe we've we've lost over time is that friendly neighborhood sort of rapport mm-hmm. I know it still exists I mean the guy I work with you know he's South African they they go and draw out all their king of the hill parties they all go out and put their seats out and they talk to each other mm. and. Um, so it is in areas, but obviously, you know, we're quite all close to the city here and maybe closer we get towards uh, epicenters of humanity, a lot of that humanity ceases to exist. And maybe the commentary that's being said there is because it's at the airport, it's actually removed away from the main city life. Yeah. Right. They're able to uh, live in that sort of more harmonious suburban dream. Um, well, there's that there's that weird, and it's funny for a family that really aren't very aspirational at all, uh, which reminded me of a more modern Australian film, Basin Dream, which I think yep. has a very similar vibe, and also it takes place in the 90s. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was sort of a... Actually, 1997, I think, specifically. So they wow. almost to the day, it takes place yep. in the same time period. Um, but that one of their the things they mentioned next to the airport is the aspiration of, oh, I'll be really... Well, it's not even an aspiration, it's a joke. Like, oh, it'll be really useful if we ever do fly anywhere someday. And then yeah. that leads us to the conversation with Tracy and Con where uh, they talk about their Bangkok uh, honeymoon. And there's no, like, oh, my God. I mean, there's a, there's a little bit of conversation later about why would you want to go there? It's for young people. But for the most part, my takeaway from that scene is they're just, like, so, like, enthralled... Mm-hmm. by the story and just the simplicity of being told the story mm. is enough for them to be satisfied. And he just wants to know what movies were shown. Well, I relate uh, to that heavily. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It doesn't care, like, about the actual trip. It was more about what was the plane ride like because no... Because that's know, the more unique yeah, experience. Yeah, no one yeah. had been on a plane ride. We've all They've all been to the beach or they've mm. all been to, you know, mm. whatever they might have done in Thailand. But yeah. they, um, you know, the plane ride was just incredible so yeah. yeah that definitely um was an interesting take not My, the questions you'd have now i don't think well i mean even when zeke goes on holidays i ask him what movies were playing on the plane yeah, yeah. <laughs> That generally, that generally, because cur- I'm always like curious. I'll how- tell you on my Europe trip. When oh, that thank happens. you, thank yeah. you, thank okay. you. I, I'm really curious. I do ask Kirsty that a lot when she flies. I'm like, what, what do they play in the? <laughs> well, now <laughs> you can pick it yourself. It's not the same. As- oh, that's true. No. In '97, there would have yeah. been like I don't know if you, either of you remember when there was like 
just TV every 15 rows or something. Oh, that very was, early. Oh, early. Like, I've seen the, it in films. Yeah, yeah and that was... One TV. Yeah, and the, so there was that, and then that was it. And then you would... um they would actually play, this is the film playing, and you'd all have headphones, but right. if you wanted to watch it, you all looked down the aisle to the TV, <laughs> and you all watched yeah. the TV at the same time. And that, yeah. you know, that's not how you fly now, obviously, but, um, so what was showing was a big thing. And the other thing that was, um, we used to think about when flying is mm. we used, you'd um, have international releases that hadn't been released in Australia mm. yet. Ah, and they'd get so you good. if you flew overseas you could see movies that hadn't even come out yet yeah because they used to have such staggered film releases whereas now everything has an international release date yeah. because yep. of piracy or whatever um but i remember going on a holiday once and we watched um we got to see a few films that hadn't even come out in australia and i came That's back cool. to school and i was like yeah i've already seen it. it yeah i've already <laughs> seen it or whatever and it was awesome whereas like so that's a, probably another reason why they're so like oh what movies were they showing what yeah, was going yeah. on like, that's true that's you true. know there were there were Absolutely. other layers i guess that we probably don't get now i like the idea first of of day almost being like the translator of the film because he's the only one that visits wayne in the prison so that's how i sort of that that's my motivation i think for why he's the translator. well he does open it saying this is my story he does and he kind yeah, of in yeah. a way where it's really it's his dad's story it but is, he goes, yeah, but, it's, but he but he's in the fam- himself. Yeah, he's in the family, and so it's kind of from his perspective, and it's he just goes... very young Stephen Curry. Yeah, yeah. It's a pre-Hounds of Love by a fair bit. But what I love as well about... It's actually quite subtle, because we were joking earlier about the, the repetitiveness of, of him saying, like, oh, well, Dad would say this, and then, and then his dad would literally say that diegetically so there's that constant back and forth but what i love is that this one-to-one translation actually ends up not necessarily helping but when we get to the end of the film where a lot of the dialogue is more legalese and you have lawyers arguing that his voiceover actually kind of does serve as like a a better translation of what's actually yeah. been said yeah, there well, which I, essentially he's just getting daryl's account of the story exactly exactly yeah. yeah yeah because none of them are ever there no and so the dad comes in saying, oh, yeah, we did a great job when they actually was terrible. And the audience yeah. knows that because we've just seen the scene. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, it's it's great. It's I think it's just so well done. The it's, whole film is... It's almost mm. like, I would say, like, it's hard to give it, but you'd almost give it, like, sort of 5 out of 5, 10 out of 10 kind of thing. Yeah. Like, it just... It works so well for what it is. Um, I mean, I understand why this is, like, the quintessential... Australian film. I still... I reckon Muriel's Wedding probably spoke to me more. Okay. But like Zeke said earlier, it's not really because the film is so Australian or like the use of Abbott music, for example. But this... The, the Australianisms are quintessential mm-hmm. to the film's success and the effectiveness of the story. You know, and hell of a week, right? To be picking an Australian film when you've got your Matildas sitting in a semi-final <laughs> spot against England, which is how good... But um, I could hear Jamie Dad in the other room screaming when that was oh, happening. <laughs> I've watched every Matildas game in this World Cup, and it's just the more it's been going on, the more patriotic I'm getting. And the fact that we have to play <laughs> England on Wednesday is, yeah. I'm just, and I have my partner's English, and I have been filthy. <laughs> this whole week, we but... were we were watching the um, penalties at the at Optus, ready for the derby to begin. Oh yeah. my god! So we had it up perfect. on the stadium. The crowd was going nuts when they got that last one. Everyone just went absolutely ballistic. Yeah. To oh. be, be to be fair, the atmosphere was better for that than the derby because it was a horrible game. But they yeah, are... I thought it was, I thought it was an excellent game. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
but that's uh, that's just my opinion. But yeah, it genuinely <laughs> makes you feel patriotic. This film, like it really does. Like it does. It really, yeah. And I think watching it, the older I get, the more I'm like, yeah, like it is that real. Like I love how Australian this film is, and how pr- in its it's telling in the way it is. It's proud to be Australian. I really do think it has led to this. Not all Australian cinema, but there is a definitely now a subgenre of Australian cinema that almost feels like that sort of we're happy, the, the patriotism aspect to it. Um, mm-hmm. And going through like the, the ACMI in Melbourne and you see like all of Australia's sort of like cinematic history and mm-hmm. you see shows like Round the Twist and you're like, which feels like proud to be Australian in its own way and that's got its own family warm quirkiness to it. Um, and I think it did. It, I could name a ton of films that this feel this this film really sort of set the precedent for. Mm. Um, nothing is good though. This film is just so funny. Yeah, I'm glad I watched it the two twice in a row because not that I didn't necessarily get it the first time, but I mean it was just a much deeper appreciation for what made it special the second yeah. time. So I'm re- and it's very rare that I watch a film for the podcast like twice yeah. to prep for it. Unless there's something like big in the cinema that I wanted to see twice. But before we move on to our highlight scenes, I wanted to list the 13 Australian films we actually have done on the podcast. Oh. Not as a defense, Andy. Not as a defense. That sounded pretty defensive. Okay, fair enough. There's a, it's only 5% of all episodes we've ever done. <laughs> uh, That's but wild. So, but some of these include. Well, it, I think this is actually interesting because, in terms of. The, the genre and, and tone of the Australian films we usually go for, I don't think uh, comedies, much like The Castle is, they tend to be a lot darker. Ooh, yeah. So I wrote The Nightingale, Animal Kingdom, Sweet Country, Baby Teeth, The Dry, we mentioned Gallipoli earlier, Picnic and Hanging Rock, Streamline, Knit Ram, The Babadook, uh, Elvis, I guess, kind of counts. <laughs> I suppose okay. so. Um, and then Thor Ragnarok on there as well. That was shot in Queensland. <laughs> we didn't do Thor Ragnarok Thank on the show. So they, there you go. Um, and there's also The Stranger and Mad Max. And um, okay. I didn't include The Piano. That's more like New Zealand, I'm pretty it sure. It is Kiwi, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sadly. So pretty much all of those are much, much darker films <laughs> yeah. than The Castle. And, yeah. and, and to be honest, uh, you know, like going through like the ACMI and stuff like that, you see... We do have a very a tendency to go for that kind of darker sort of cinema, don't we? We think really of Australiana as like crime and and yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. it, Australian cinema started with the outlaw films, yeah, yeah, fair and enough. that was the big thing. And then the government came along and said, "No, we mm. are thanks for you that. Know, we don't want to be represented <laughs> that way, and that's not the way we, we want to." And it's encouraging. They thought it might be problematic to society or whatever, and they um effectively killed the industry. Because um, we mm. did have the very first feature film yeah. in Australia, so um, it's always a fun mic drop moment. Thanks, when you tell the thanks, kids that. Australia yeah. government. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then they went downhill fairly fast, and Hollywood went, "We'll have that, please." <laughs> and that was that. Yeah, but it is. It is a genuinely earnest film mm. that celebrates the Australian identity. I think. And in a much more positive light than those other films do. <laughs> and probably in, more re- in a lot of ways, as, as hyperbolic as it is at, at times, it, it, the earnestness and the, the attitudes and values, they, they still exist in us today. Yes. Um, there's probably a few more swear words than there is in the castle in between. I do, I do love when we do get a good swear uh, in the castle. 
Yeah. I mean, yeah, all the photocopier scenes are brilliant. They're yeah. absolutely phenomenal. I love it. It's a great way of showing <laughs> the level of the lawyer because yeah. any sort of high-level lawyer is not dealing with the photocopier jamming. <laughs> and that's kind of like a really yeah. simple thing to be like... One, they show where he works and you yeah. see he's got this weird office on the building. I would like, laugh even just at that shot. <laughs> yeah, but but then like just by having that, it's a great way of showing it without having, you know, they say show, don't tell. Yeah. And it's just a great way of establishing the level of the mm. lawyer without having to be like, you know, there's the eight year joke for Wayne getting eight years. Yeah, but yeah. then like without having to spend five minutes saying that, you know, he normally does this. He's never had a big case. La, da, 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 da. Well, the, the other detail is, is this accountant that supposedly exists that we never, I don't think we ever see. Mm. Uh, but the other thing is that, and I, I, mum noticed this and I was like, that's really funny is when he's, he's recording his defense or what's going to go in the letter uh, that he's going to send out. And then he finishes recording, puts it down and just starts writing it himself. I'm like, that's such a great detail. Like, yeah. He does both those jobs. <laughs> in- instead of passing it on. Like, exactly. Only- like the secretary writes it out for yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I yeah. think genius. Yeah. It is sort of, yeah, it is that epitome of sort of that Australian cute comedy sort of stuff, which I reckon happened for like the next five or six years. I mean, you've got things like Cracker Jack that came out after this. That like yeah. Mike, the Mick Malloy sort of films from the early aughts that sort of time i watched um cracker jack recently for the first time it's great it's great yeah has the same sort of tone yeah okay um yeah there's a lot of there's quite a few there's like boyhood and and not boyhood boy boy town which is like a pop there was quite a few from that era where you've got like the basically everyone from thank god you're here we're in a bunch of films (laughs) (laughs) which has also made a comeback it's been a great great time for australia in the last (laughs) I love the I love the Channel Nine um, music the at the end of the film or yeah. at the end of the film and um, and um what's his hey, face hey, is Saturday. in it um who was it was oh. it Grant Denyer or no who was the guy that was doing Will of um Price is Right Price is Right who's oh. still on TV that's right they have a whole scene there don't yeah, they yeah the um, family's all in the audience. Yeah, because they're on the prices, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And the guy. Who's How do they fit the... that into an eleven-day shoot? <laughs> That's an aggressive eleven-day shoot. That's amazing. I love that. Well, while Andy finds that fun fact, Jake, yes. what was your highlight scene? I actually had no idea going into this podcast what I was struggling, but I think I figured out maybe my highlight scene. And I mentioned it earlier was the dinner discussion where the kids are like, "Oh, why don't we? You know, it's an extra twenty-five grand. Why don't we take it?" And it is that you know, the story of how they met, which is technically being told, but now recontextualized the fact that she was on another date. And, and, and it was, um, it was Daryl's <coughs> a non pushy attitude towards getting with her. And I don't want to step on anyone's toes. And it's just like a really wholesome and sweet moment that the film is full of mm. <laughs> admittedly, but I, of all the, of all the scenes that are hilarious, that have great, like one liners that are super quotable, that was the one I think that actually spoke to me maybe the most. Yeah. So I thought it was a great It's like scene. an Australia Care Bear stare. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, it is. It, that's a great scene to pick from. What's, what's your highlight scene, Zeke? I go for two. I think the first time they're in the sort of the more the private court hearing and we, we get that oh, very great... poor case. That uh, is it, Dennis. That's making? Yeah, Dennis. That's that he's making. It's just the awkward sort of blocking of that scene. Yeah, you know, bringing up the Marbo. Oh, sort he's of, standing up and sitting back down. I rest my case. <laughs> yeah, I actually um 
wrote that down. Oh, yeah? Because I was like, oh, it's so good. He's like, it's the vibe of it. It's the Constitution. <laughs> it's Marbo. It's justice. <laughs> it's law. It's the vibe. And nah, that's it. It's the vibe. <laughs> I rest my case. Like, it's just so good. Oh, <laughs> my God. Yeah. And, and to be honest, it's like, in a way, what he's, what the, the satire of that scene is, it almost feels like every courtroom drama... Like that's kind of the in it, the footnote version. Right. Like if you would abbreviate it, so you put it into ChatGPT. Sum up this giant <laughs> ending <laughs> monologue from a few good men. You probably could get it in that that short. Oh, constitution and right, yeah, that, that law and it's, it's, rights. It's like it's, they took out the keywords and left <laughs> everything else. Well, out. it's almost like you can you can contrast it to Lawrence's big speech, his final speech that you could argue maybe wins him the case at the very end. Is that perhaps it is the same speech but very condensed? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the vibe, and that's the funny thing. Is it like that's the theme of the whole film? You yeah. can sum it up. It's it's yeah. the vibe, because it's like the whole point is you just even though they legally could take the house, yeah, and most likely if it was real they probably would just take the house. Mm. But the vibe of what it means to be Australian is that it's just not right. Yeah. And, like, the, the saying it would go now is, would it pass the pub test? Hmm. And that's, like, I don't know if that's an Australianism or not, but this idea of... Um, Definitely more than smell test, I guess. It would be, um, yeah. Does it pass the smell test? Yeah, does it pass the pub test? Is If you were to t- talk to your mates at the thing, would the general consensus at the pub agree with what the decision is, or yeah. is it just not the vibe? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's true. And it, one of the saddest things is it's, like... Now, obviously, with the the accessibility of social media and and it feels like every day we get a little bit more Americanized because of all of that media and and stuff getting filtered in. A lot of that Australian identity and that this this language, the origin, um, the origins of sort of vernacular that comes from abbreviations, culture, and stuff like this gets a little bit it gets a little bit more noisy and a little bit harder i mean mm. like the kids now in school they'll say stuff and you'll be like what what is that and that's based off a uk slang or or a us slang that they've heard from a video and they they start to lose a little bit more of that australian identity that we were probably still exposed to because there wasn't that much that much noise out there when we were in well, school well yeah now we're just so all interconnected with the rest of the world and also you which is not a bad a thing of... necessarily but when you think it's about sad. when you were kids, like a lot of um, original content came from like the ABC or something, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, which we're not getting as much of anymore. Mm. Although I did hear of a case on Facebook, which means it has to be true. Um, <laughs> That's of, his primary source. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Of um, a lady complaining in America because her kid was starting to speak with a slight Australian accent because <laughs> oh, all no. they were watching was Bluey. <laughs> nice. And I was like, there I'm, we go. We're, and we're I, kicking it back. I yeah. my hand up and I've seen many a scenes from Bluey. That is an institution. I'm fully on the Bluey train <laughs> because Bluey is preserving our Australian culture. I would write say on that. Yeah. My um, One of my best mates is... um has a 18 month old and mm. the blue is just playing constantly and they nice. love it. And I hear a lot of stories of parents getting just as into it as like the kids are. It's that was yeah. Tarantino the with Peppa Pig. Parents are like, the, yeah. there's some real like adult comedy going on in it too. It's got that real cheekiness to it, which is like, 
it's great. It's great. We want to see Australian content there for that preservation and impact on mainstream culture in like a positive way. Because yeah, the world becoming more interconnected that is a positive thing. But homogenizing every aspect of a culture, exactly. losing identity, you're loses right. Your yeah, identity that's where it really gets sad. And, and especially in a film that's so importantly, yes, there are universal themes. It got picked up in America. There's definitely like you can derive the American dream and obviously big business coming in and pushing out a family from their home. Yeah. Those are universal themes, but it is innately Australian and mm. it's celebrating the fact it's Australian. Like the scenes like them going to Bali and them being so fascinated, that comes from the fact that you're in a country that's huge and mm. it takes a lot of effort to get anywhere outside of this yeah. country. That anywhere past Alice I Springs. I still know people <laughs> yeah. that have not left this country. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. Yep. I've ne- I've never left Australia. There, there you go. go. My um, my uncle and auntie live in the UK, and my auntie was telling me when she was over last, um, because they grew up here, but now live over there. But yep. she was telling me that a lot of her friends, just to jump on what you're saying, can't actually comprehend the scale of Australia. So, like, when she explains to them it's, like, flying from Madrid to St. Petersburg or whatever as, like, the whole breadth of Europe or it's as big as the mainland USA or whatever, yeah. they just can't... And then how small the population is and there's so much empty space mm-hmm. of nothing. And then when you live in Perth, you can't just drive somewhere else. You've got to, like, either it's plan a, trip, a week to yeah. get there or you got to fly. Like yeah, We are in the most um, isolated city in one of the mo- and the most isolated continent. Like, that, yeah. it's yeah. beyond comprehension. Um, yeah, but it is really interesting. Yeah, you're right. Even compared to Europe, just how close everything yeah. is. I, I don't think it really clocked in. I didn't really clock in on the scale until I got a little bit older and I was like, it takes me six, it takes six hours to drive to Albany. Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> like five out, five, six hours to get to Albany. And you're like, that's just Albany. Like, yeah, it's yeah. not even down the road. Broom, that's like yeah, that's a three day drive, and you're like barely stopping. Like, yeah. you're doing nine hour stints getting up there. Like it's just insane. Yeah. To think well, about. that that's something the internet can't take away from us is our is our literal isolation, isolation from <laughs> from everyone yeah. else. Andy, what was your highlight scene or scenes plural? I'm sorry, Andy. I don't know if... um, (laughs) No, that's fine. It wasn't really the scene as much as, like... For me, the castle is more just the lines. Yeah, like Rather than there being one scene where I'm like, oh, that's the scene. Like, when they're sitting there eating dinner and the Rissoles comment, like, I quote that a lot at home. (laughs) I love that scene. Um, I love the scene where he's just you know, they first get to Bonnie Doon and they can't understand why no one wanted the property and then you can do, and then the shot just goes, I pan, um, tilts up and you just see the, um, the play, yeah. the big, um, power lines in the oh, middle yeah, of the property. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And like all that sort of thing. But for me, it's like, it's the lines. It's like the pool room and the vibe and the, um, you know, all that sort of stuff. I do love the scene when they rip the gates off the oh, rich great. guy's house. Yeah. And then at the end of the film, he's installed them. Yeah. Like, they're not going to waste. <laughs> like, and and the, the line is like, got him for a bargain that one time. Yeah. <laughs> Two in the morning. <laughs> when they stole them, that's how much of a bargain it was. Um, yeah, I don't know if I can pin it down to one no, specific scene. I, but I struggled I just, with this one too. Yeah, yeah but I just... Yeah, it's, so, it's like endlessly quotable. Yeah. Um, and we've been, I mean, I've been quoting it with my family, like, my whole life, it feels oh. like. I don't know how old I was when I first watched it, but I've watched it a few times, and it was, yeah. 
Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's I'm, great. I'm very glad we haven't done the film until now, so that we could get you to join and. Oh, thank you. I'm share. also glad that you didn't do it. <laughs> it did take me a while to narrow it down, though. I did have some. Um, yeah, it took me a while to pick it. It was getting to the wire because we, of course, we announced the film we're doing the following week ahead of schedule. So for last week's episode, every couple of hours, I'm like, Andy, uh, yeah, closing in on any on anything yet? <laughs> it's too many movies. There are way too many movies and, and yeah. too many that we've already covered. So, The Castle is currently out on wide release. Is, is there any streaming platforms? It's on Stan. There you go. Of course it's on Stan. Uh, all of the places to be, Stan mm. would be the place it is. Jake, yeah. speaking of streaming platforms, what's new to streaming platforms and cinemas this week? It's a bit of a light week on streaming. You've got films like Man of Fire coming to Stan, so, which I've never seen. That's Tony yeah. Scott, isn't it? Indeed it is. It's a good film. It's a good film. I think I, do I have the DVD of it? If it's not there, it's in the other room. I definitely have a DVD of it somewhere. Uh, coming to Disney+, Plus, we have Miguel Wants to Fight, which is a coming-of-age comedy about a 17-year-old who asks his three best friends to help him get into a fist fight before moving to a new city. This doesn't sound very sounds Disney. Like Cobra, I mean, sound like Cobra Kai to me. And Kadaha comes to Prime, which stars uh, Gerald Butler as an undercover CIA operative he gets stranded in Afghanistan and with the help of his translator fights his way to the extraction point. If only Dale was his translator. I think that would make it a slightly different film, potentially. He's so chubby now. How can he be doing all of these really intense I don't know, man. fighting stuff? He's so chubby. Like, it's just... Stunt double. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For the whole film. They just CGI his face onto the... He's on, he's on a mobile scooter. <laughs> Coming to binge this week, we have The Fugitive, which I also haven't seen. I've seen part of it. Uh, and it's funny you mention it, Zeke. Mel Brooks's Blazing Saddles is coming to binge this week as well. The Harrison Ford Fugitive? I think so, yes. It's a great movie. I've just got The Fugitive. Really I don't have a year on there, but that's what I got. And coming to cinemas this week, we have Strays, which stars Will Ferrell as Reggie, an abandoned dog who teams up with other strays to get revenge on his former owner. Are we excited to see this? Isn't Will Forte like the owner? I think so, yeah. They get like throws him out. Like the arsehole. Bite his nuts off. That's yeah. the whole premise That's the of the thing. film. I'm, I'm keen for it. I'm somewhat keen, yeah. I don't know yeah. if I'm going to be rushing to the cinemas. <laughs> um, I'm surprised it's taking this long to make a film like this. I ever thought when Cats vs. Dogs came out, I thought that like, right. have a film like this come out. Mm. You know what I mean? Like a, an adult comedy using the same talky mouth presence. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's kind of like um, Sausage Party kind of I was idea, thinking of Sausage Party. Where yeah. they take like a... Hopefully it's not as bad as Sausage Party. Like a premise <laughs> of using like a kid's idea, like talking dogs. And making for it instance. foul and rude. Yeah, and yeah. then going, okay, let's make this for adults or something. I um, wish that movie ended after the first 30 minutes Sausage Party. It's, anything after that is just horrific. Can end after the meatloaf joke. <laughs> Can end long before... Uh, a certain ending climactic scene happened. Yes. Oh, yeah, that was that was fun. And then kept going for, for like <laughs> ten minutes. Just think about all the poor animators that got abused <laughs> animating that scene. Uh. <laughs> oh god. I should also mention Stray also stars Jamie Foxx, Isla Fisher, and Randall Park. I guess all those are different dogs. Um I've been waiting this one for a while. Blackberry which chronicles the story of the me- meteoric rise and castro- castro- catastrophic demise of the world's first smartphone. Phone is pretty good. 
Hmm. Steve Jobs-esque, I suppose. Well, he's he's the villain, isn't he? Because he's the one who technically undoes all of Blackberry's hard work. I guess so. Or innovates, I guess. I haven't read enough um, Silicon Valley biographies, autobiographies. But yeah. I'm sure yeah, it's interesting. I don't know. I've I, heard it's good. That's I, I I like these kinds of stories. The yeah, you know the 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 billionaire, you know entrepreneurial digital guy. Did you watch the um, Nike one recently? I did. Air. Yeah. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. It was alright. Yeah. It could have been more because I'm like a big basketball fan, so could have been more basketball involved than actually how good the film was. Mm. But yeah. 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 It was. It was a great dad film. <laughs> It was good. It's the right notes. Um, Godland comes to Palace this week, finds a young Danish priest at the end of the 19th century travel deep into the Icelandic landscape as he loses his sense of reality, his mission, and his sense of duty. I remember this one at um at Cannes was a big one. And um, I like the poster of him. It almost looks like he's flying over the Icelandic water. Mm. So I'm, I'm, keen, I'm glad we're finally getting it here. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, also coming to Luna this week, we've got Sanctuary, I believe it's Sanctuary, uh, which is confined to a claustrophobic hotel room and sees the heir of a hotel empire, Christopher Abbott, and his Domatrix, Dominatrix. Say, I'm, I'm a very innocent little boy who don't know such words. Um, and she's of course played by Margot Qualley, uh, who has primed him for success, become locked in a battle of wits and wills as he tries to end his relationship with her. Looks very sexy. Interesting. Yeah. Nice. I, I'm not going to go... I haven't... Hmm. I actually haven't seen that, like, a preview for that or anything. I've so. seen, like, clips, like, with no audio playing, and... Yeah, it seems very, like, kinky and funny mm-hmm. and... Intense. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. I'm, I'm not sure what to make. I don't even know how it's reviewing, but that exists. And finally, also coming to Luna, is the new Halo Films film, Frank and Frank which is a gentle character-driven drama about a friendship between two men shot in Albany. There you go. Well, we're talking about Banshees with Full Circle. Yeah. Men on Men platonic friendship. Must be the uh, flavour of the year. Potentially. The Potentially. Speaking of shooting in Albany, uh, mm. Nick Cage is coming soon. He is, yeah. Yeah. Should we so. all apply for a... Can we play 16-year-old surfer dudes? Yeah, yeah. Can we do it? I reckon if I sh- shave. I don't know what it's like <laughs> in the year. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Fair enough. But that's everything coming to streaming and cinemas this week. Excellent. Well, it is a director's corner next up. So, Jake, who's the director and what are we watching? We thought next week we would talk about uh, the late William Freakin, who, of course, passed away only a week ago. Very sad. Um, so we're going to talk about his filmography and, of course, his 1971 classic, The French Connection. He was so happy if he had a Who is that clown? Jewish lucky what about the last of big time spenders? You make him? No, are you? He's spreading it around like the Russians are in Jersey. They say we stick around and give him a tail. Our friend's name is Boca, Salvatore Boca, B-O-C-A. Well, downtown, they're pretty sure he pulled off a contract on a guy named DeMarco. Man, that's not a drop, I'll open up a charge for you at Bloomingdale's. B-O-C-A. Doesn't miss. And then on our own, after working a whole day and night, we tailed him to Brooklyn. And we sat on him for practically a week. Now, who do we come up with? The French Connection. A millionaire exporter with a record too clean to be true. And Doyle knows it. But he's been known to make mistakes. Your hunches have backfired before, Doyle. This time, he can't afford to be wrong. 
tough narcotics detective Popeye Doyle is in hot pursuit of the suave French drug dealer who may be the key to a huge heroin smuggling smuggling operation. I've never seen this. Neither. Haven't seen it either. Great. There we go. <laughs> but of course, uh, you won't be joining us for this next one. But m- maybe, maybe you could watch the film. I can keep up. And then you yeah. can keep up and listen listen to our discussion next week. Sounds good to me. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, I hope thank you, you for joining us, yeah. Andy. Thanks for inviting me. It's I hope you great. had fun in what may be our longest podcast we've ever done. There we go. <laughs> Barbie <laughs> beat it. Now uh, I hope you didn't it. have anywhere to be tonight, Andy. <laughs> nowhere, nowhere more important than this. Ah, oh, we love it. Well, until then, boy. thank you for joining us for the Cinema Star Show podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And I was Andy. We'll catch you next week with The French Connection.